get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. We're embarrassed. You know, that was not um, that was not what we do. You know, we stick with it. We compete to the end and, and we didn't. And, and it's, you know, it's my fault. It's, you know, it's another guy's too. We have to find a way to get something out of it. And it's, it's very disappointing. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Could we just never speak of that game ever again? Just just never again. Let's pretend it didn't happen. The Blues lose on Friday night. Thank God this was two days ago at this point. Eight goal deficit tied for the second largest margin of defeat in Blues franchise okay, history. So, so you're going to open up by saying, can we never talk about this again? But then you're going to start laying all these historical stats out to us. Yeah, so we're just going to spend the next 10 minutes on it and then move on. Okay, And cool. then just, just never speak of it again after cool. that. Until 1 o'clock when we get back into it's it. It's fine, I got over it. But always, Blues whatever. gave up five goals on the power play for the first time in eh, 18 years. Oh, God. <laughs> it's It was a rough night for a team that looked like in night number one that they were going to be awesome all season long. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I heard Alex Ferrario say after that game, the Blues had some combination of Hull and Oates and Crosby and McDavid all on their team right now. Never said Crosby and McDavid, but I appreciate you trying to throw me under the bus there. And I even posted it on Twitter, BK. I admitted failure. I said, for some reason feel like this is kind of my fault. Alex, you're my guy. You're my Blues insider. What the hell happened? How did, how did that happen to this Blues team this early? I think it's the exact same thing that happened to this team in the bubble. There was too much confidence within that roster of we can figure this thing out and it's not going to be as challenging as it was. And Ryan O'Reilly even said it. He said it post game. Everyone just took that too simple. They they figured this was going to be too easy, but I do think there How was does that happen though. You're in game number two. You're in game number two. Yes, it's not but like it's the doldrums of the summer. But Colorado played so poorly in that first game that it probably felt like to them, oh okay, this isn't too bad. We're good. Let's just do that again. And you can't do that again because, look, one, the officials called an absurd amount of penalties. I'm not using this as an excuse. I'm not. But, PK, <laughs> 11 penalties. It's just incredible to me. The penalty kill was god-awful. Like, I'm not defending that. That penalty kill didn't know what they were doing on the ice. Plus, they were caught off guard way too much. But I do think the other factor in this, and I got just obliterated post game because they said I was making excuses, which I don't think is an excuse. I think it is. You were without a defenseman in the first period on. 
You were they, down. They were outplayed from Jump Street, man. They, they were. There was never a point in time in that game when they looked like they I were agree. going to be a threat to the Avalanche in any way, shape, or form. They I, were completely outplayed. I agree 100% with that. They were outplayed. They did not play well. But to add on to that, you were trying to, you were trying to overcompensate by the fact that you were without one of your penalty killing defensemen, which means the guy that's not usually on the penalty kill has to be on the penalty kill. You were trying to offset from the first period, which I think he left the game at about five or six minutes into that first. Played like a minute and a half. He yeah, played enough. You were trying to offset and overcompensate by that by using more defensemen of the five guys that you already had. It's not an easy thing to do. We've talked about it with Jamie Rivers. Altitude will kick your ass playing in Colorado, especially with no preseason, no conditioning. I think all of these factors combined added into the fact that this team wasn't ready to play and that's why we saw such a god-awful performance yeah i'm not willing to blame the refs in any way no. shape or form they, they were not moving and when you don't move you start reaching it's the same thing in basketball football baseball hockey it doesn't matter the sport when you're when you're t- you look dog tired and you're not moving your feet you get behind and that leads to penalties. And that's what happened to the Blues. They were reaching, they were hooking, everything. And th- that's how they end up getting as many penalties called in the end. It was, what, eight penalties on them? It's a problem. They- they've got to clean that up. And part of that is just moving their feet. Mike Hoffman was one of the guys that was not moving his feet. And now Craig Berube talked yesterday at practice about how the Blues are now mixing up the forward lines because as the reports came out, it certainly wasn't the same groupings that we had seen on Friday night. Here's Craig Berube after practice talking about why he decided to mix up the lines. Yeah, a little more balance. I think it makes us a little bit more balanced for sure. And just, you know, I'm you know still tinkering with getting, you know, chemistry going. Uh, you know, we like to use four lines. We like them to all be, you know, producing and uh, doing good things. So that's all. You know, really, I think there's going to be some tinkering going on for a bit. Who knows? It's pretty clear. And for you, you were on this. We talked about it in the preseason. It's going to take some time for the chemistry yeah. and for them to be able to figure out what the best combinations are with these lines. We're going to probably see this, I would imagine, for a few weeks. Well, and then they'll figure out, okay, here's what works best for us. Mm-hmm. And then we'll move forward with that. But yesterday at practice, the top line was Sanford on the left wing with Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron. It was Schwartz, Shin, and Kairu on that second line. Shin now moving back to center, at least for the time being. Hoffman was on the third line on the left wing for right now with Thomas and Bozak. And then the fourth line stayed at is Clifford, Barbashev, and Sunquist. I was a little surprised by this. I probably shouldn't have been after what we saw. And they were, I mean, they were putting those lines into a blender on Friday night, in part because of what you said. They only have uh, the five defensemen available to them. My biggest takeaway from the way that they kind of put these lines together, they went back to pairings. Mm -hmm. Now it's Thomas with Hoffman, Schwartz with Shin, Ryan O'Reilly with Perron. And then it's that third guy that can kind of move around. It also looks to me... Like they wanted to make sure they got a defensive minded forward with Mike Hoffman. 
because he did not look prepared for the way that the Blues are playing defensively. It's one game. It's very early. It can change. I expect it to change. But getting Tyler Bozak on that line, I think, is going to be a good thing for the time being. Yeah, I mean, look, throughout that game, Hoffman was playing on the top line. He played on the fourth line. I mean, he was everywhere, and rightfully so. You were trying to get something going when it was eight to nothing. But, I mean, I expected this in terms of chemistry flaws because, again, I mean, you were doing you were basically doing three lines brand new because Thomas playing with Schwartz. I mean, that was kind of unusual with Thomas in the middle. Shen being on the wing. Now they put him back to center. You had a lot of lines that were kind of all over the place. And look, you weren't getting any offense from that top unit. You weren't getting anything from O'Reilly and Shen and Perron. Now, defensively, they were great. They were matching up against that top unit. But when that fell apart, you needed to start getting some depth. But chemistry was my thing. And Hoffman has not been a great defensive forward. He's an offensive guy. We know this. Um, And frankly, he's been playing what Jamie Rivers has called pond hockey for the last five years in Florida, where it's just basically park yourself in one spot. We'll get the puck to you. It's not how this works if you're going to play for Craig Berube. So it's going to be a learning curve for him. It's going to be a learning curve for all of these guys now because, look, you're under new leadership. You don't have Steen. You don't have Bomeister. You don't have Petrangelo. These guys aren't in the locker room to kind of kick everyone right into the gear. Now that's O'Reilly's task. Now that's Pareko's task and Shen's task and Schwartz's task. So I, I said this with Danny Mack earlier. I'm not so much evaluating tonight's game because tonight's game I'm assuming is going to be good because you're coming out with fire after one bad loss and two you're in your home ice with fans in the stands i'm watching wednesday's game because wednesday's game needs to be the consistent carryover from monday and if tonight goes wrong then we got a problem yeah i'm i'm not worried about this um i gotta give credit where it's due keith kara's dad said hey listen I'll give them about 10 games before I start to judge anything about this team, just because it's a weird return to play, right? It's a good point. Let's give them about 10 days or 10 games, which is essentially two or three weeks of playing. Mm-hmm. And then let's see where they are. Then if they still look as inconsistent as they did from game number one to game number two, where we saw probably the best case scenario for the blues in night number one. And then the actual worst case scenario in the second game of the season. If they're still that inconsistent, once we get two or three weeks in, then we can have some more serious discussions about where this team is. But as of right now, I think they're a lot closer to what they were in game number one than they were in game number two. Yeah, I mean, I just, maybe it is because I'm always so positive with this and I put the Blues in a bad spot. But look, I mean, for me, I walked out of that game saying eight nothing. Wow, that's terrible. But then when you think about it, five power play goals, you're looking at a three nothing game. And in that second period where you were zero zero, Two of those power play goals, one was Schwartz getting a stick in the face, so you were basically a five-on-three the other way. The second power play goal was a just terrible play defensively. And then the two even strength goals, I mean, you just got miscommunicated. So, I mean, if you take those power play goals away and you take away a little of the miscommunication on the ice, you're talking about a different hockey game. So eight, nothing bad. You should not lose that way. But for me, the, the, the black spot on that game was the fact that your penalty kill is in terrible shape right now. Yeah. That was the Murphy's law game. Mm -hmm. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And it did go wrong for the blues on Friday night against the avalanche eight to nothing. You heard all the action right here on 101 ESPN. 
your home for the Blues. You will hear tonight's action. Alex Ferrario has pregame coverage coming up at 6 o'clock. Puck drop at 7 right here on 101 ESPN. All of that coming your way. We also have the game on Wednesday night versus the Sharks as well. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. It's 11:10. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we'll talk with our guy Frank Schwab of Yahoo Sports. We'll be joined by Darren Pang, Blues analyst coming up at 12:30. But coming up next, I know you guys get sick of me talking about Tom Brady, and I don't know how I became Tom Brady guy. It's it's as shocking to me as it is to anybody else. You seem to be a Tom Brady guy. Tom Brady is inevitable, and last night was simply the latest reminder of that. We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Tom Brady with another postseason win for the first time in his career. He has won two road games in the playoffs. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers get the victory today against the Saints. 30-20 to is the final score. Sometimes you just see things in life. You say, you know what? It was inevitable. It was going to happen. There was no way that wasn't going to happen. Tom Brady has become that. In fact, Tommy, Tom Brady has been that. You just called him Tommy. You really are a Tom Brady fanboy now, aren't you? <laughs> come on now. Come on. You, you know that's Tommy. not true. Tom Brady, some of the numbers that came out after last night's game were unbelievable. Tom Brady now has 14 career divisional rounds. He has 14 and two in that round. That would be a great regular season record. He's done that in the divisional round in Games that you would expect that he's either a 50-50 shot to win or 60-40 maybe shot to win. He's 14-2 and in those games. Only four other quarterbacks have won that many career, career postseason games in all rounds. Only one has more. It was Joe Montana who has 16. He's headed now. Think about this, Ferrario. He started his career in 2001. That was, you know, back when we had the greatest show on turf here in St. Louis. Tom Brady is now heading to his 14th conference championship. The next closest is Joe Montana, who prior to Brady was seen as the GOAT. Mm -hmm. He had seven. Tom Brady has been to 14 conference championships now. Let me give you a few fun facts, okay? I was curious, you know, what was going on in the world in 2001 when Tom Brady went to his first conference championship? We know here in St. Louis that was around the time of um, the greatest show on turf. These fun facts are abilities to make people feel old. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, Albert Pujols that year was a rookie for the St. Louis Cardinals. Jeez. A rookie in Major League Baseball. Yep. The top TV show in America that year was Friends. Minimum wage was $5. Yikes. Eric Crouch won the Heisman that year in college football. That's not a real person. Eric Crouch was one of the best college <laughs> football quarterbacks I have ever seen, honestly. AOL was the most popular website on the internet. My God. <laughs> All of that was taking place when Tom Brady started this run. Now he's with a new team, new coach, new teammates, and he's still doing it at a high level. It's unbelievable, man. I can't believe that we're still here. And it's and it's to the fact of how he's doing it, too. It's not like what we've talked about in the past where teams are pulling him along. No, he's pulling those teams along. Now, watching that game, the storylines from me from after or after watching it, Brady was up there, but one, it was okay. Breeze blew this game. 
and Tampa's defense was just very impressive. But the fact that Tom Brady can still be the center point of all of that, still make plays, still throw touchdown passes, still drive teams upfield at the age that he is on a complete different roster with no training camp, no preseason action. It's truly just impressive with how he has built this career. And it's exactly what we thought it was going to be, BK. Who's going to kind of define their their legacy post-Patriots, Belichick or Brady. And I think Brady, even before this defined it, but now more than ever that he's headed to a championship game against the Packers, that has defined it wholeheartedly. And whatever happens in this Packers game, I don't think matters to Brady because what happened last night has defined him as the greatest football player of all time. You're right. He, He didn't look great last night. He was 18 for 33, 199 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. That's good, but... He didn't have a perfect game by any stretch, but this is Tom Brady. We've come to know this. I watched him beat the Chiefs in 2018 in Kansas City when it was Patrick Mahomes' first year as a starter, MVP season, 50 touchdowns, 5,000 yards. It didn't matter. Tom Brady found a way to win, and I thought Devin White summed this up perfectly. The the young linebacker for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he was asked after the game about, you know, what has defined this season for the Buccaneers, and he went back to a fun story about he was on, I think it was Rich Eisen's show, and Rich Eisen asked him, hey, you know, what is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers identity? And here's what he had to say after the game about what the Buccaneers identity was then and what it has become since. You know, everybody always asks, what was our identity? And, you know, we didn't have an answer. But Coach B.A., he had an answer. He said, we some who going to find a way to win the game. <laughs> and that was the best thing that I ever heard. But when he said that, it kind of clicked. We some mother bleepers are going to find a way to win the game. And that is the identity of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know who else that's the identity of? B.A. Tom Brady. Oh, okay. Tom Brady's identity in his entire career has been, I'm a mother bleeper that's going to find a way to win the game. Yeah. It doesn't matter how. He might throw for 199 yards. He might throw for 350. It, it doesn't matter who he's going up against. He might be going up against what was clearly a washed up Drew Brees, or he might be going up against a young Patrick Mahomes, who's a superstar an ascent to being a shooting star through the like. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He finds a way to get it done all season long. We critiqued all of these different little things about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You get into the postseason. They get into the divisional round. And I'll tell you this as a Chiefs fan, just watch Chiefs. And I think Patrick Mahomes is going to be back next week. You know who I don't want to see coming out of the NFC? It's not Aaron Rodgers who's going to win the MVP this year. Deservedly so. It's Tom Brady. I don't want to see that guy in the Super Bowl. I have no interest in going up against that dude because he is terrifying. Because he's inevitable. No matter how it gets done, he always finds a way. It's simplistic analysis, but it's true. He's the best. I heard this earlier today from Ryan Clark. He's the best organization in sports. Mm-hmm. You get Tom Brady on your team and you go to championships. That's how this works. Yep. It's been going this way for 20 years and it's no different now that he's down in Tampa Bay. You know, and I wonder too, if the likability has changed for Tom Brady for so long, people hated Tom Brady because of the fact that he kept winning. He was on the Patriots. Like that was the hated team. And after watching that game and just seeing the run that Tom Brady has gone through this postseason and the last kind of six games of the regular season, and then what happened last night afterwards, him on the field with Drew Brees, playing with his kids, you know, I fell in love with Tom Brady. I feel like when he tried to high-five the official after he scored that touchdown. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder from the majority if the likability of Tom Brady is shifting. Like Because it's hard to sit there and hate a guy who is so damn good every single time he takes the field. I want to hate him so much. 
but you can. I do. Yeah. Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line uh, from the six three six Cottaville Chris guys. Tom Brady was average at best. His defense won him the game. I'm with you. I, I get it. Uh, from the six one eight, he gets it done even if he has to cheat. Yeah, I want to hate him. The cheating scandal, the fact that he was in the hated evil empire up in New England with Bill Belichick. My team went up against him a lot in the playoffs, and they lost almost every single time. Right. It, I want nothing more than to hate that guy. But you can't. All I can do is respect it. I mean, at a certain point in time, when you've been doing it at this level for 20 years, he's been doing this since I was eight years old, man. Mm -hmm. I was eight years old in second grade when this guy went to his first Super Bowl. And now I'm 28 years old on middays in St. Louis Sports Talk Radio, and he's still doing it. It's crazy. I mean, Kurt Warner was at the very infancy of his career going up against this Tom Brady. And now Brady is still doing it at a high level, and we're hearing Kurt Warner on Westwood One on the call right here on 101 ESPN. His longevity is unprecedented. His amount of success that he's had now with two different teams is unprecedented. You could go with, like, the first half of his career, and it's a Hall of Fame career. And his second half of his career has been better than the first half was. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me, but all you can do at this point is sit back and respect it. I do want to talk about the other side of things in this game because Drew Brees, you mentioned him. This is going to be it for him. There was a report before the game from Jay Glazer, who was never wrong on this stuff, on the Fox NFL pregame show. Here's what he had to say about Drew Brees potentially hanging it up after this season. Drew Brees, tonight will be the last game he plays at the Superdome, and whatever his next his, his last game is, uh, if they lose tonight, if they lose next week, that'll be the last game he plays in the NFL. I really believe this Retired. is it. You That's believe, it. You that believe is it? it? That is it. No, that is it. Drew Brees will be done. That's it. Tom Brady will continue. Drew Brees, this will be his last game. It sucks that that's the way that it went out. he went out. Because much like uh, I've come to respect everything that you can say about Tom Brady, the same is true for Drew Brees. There was a point in time where I thought that the best – course of action and I was wrong on this like very wrong and I'm wrong about a lot of things but I was very wrong about this Ding. I thought there was going to be a point in time when um, they were going through those seven and nine seasons with Drew Brees at the helm I I thought that it might be in the Saints best interest to move on from Drew Brees at that point in time they didn't they held the course they 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 stayed consistent with him and they just closed out a four-year span where they won 49 regular season games 49 regular season games over the last four years. Now, this is going to be the stat that haunts him. That is the most win in any four-year span by a team that failed to reach the Super Bowl in NFL history. They had as much success as any team ever has in a four-year span without reaching the Super Bowl. And that's why I I do wonder when when he does hang it up, and it sounds like it's going to be now, I wonder how Drew Brees is remembered. Because he may be remembered as one of the best. But he's never going to reach that Peyton Manning status. He's never going to reach that Tom Brady status. I'm going to, when we get 20 years from now, we're able to truly look back on this era of the NFL. I am very curious to see where he fits among this group of guys. It sucks that he won't be Peyton Manning level because uh, I think it's because of that Super Bowl stat. Because at the end of the day, hasn't he thrown more yards than... Peyton Anybody Manning. Ever. Yeah, I mean, he's done something that quarterbacks just haven't done, even on the Tom Brady level. So it sucks with that. And nationally, I do agree. I think he's going to be viewed as a guy who could never get it done, which isn't fair to him. But I loved what Tyron Matthew said last night on Twitter um, because he's from Louisiana, went to LSU, and he said, Look, Drew Brees 
was Louisiana for us. He was New Orleans. He was what made us keep going. A lot of the people that are lower income in New Orleans, like Drew Brees was the guy that they put all of their excitement into. Well, think about Katrina, the yeah. aftermath. And it just it sucks because an entire state just idolizes a guy like that, and rightfully so because he's such a good guy. He does so much for charity work outside of New Orleans, but he did lead every season to winning seasons, it felt like. But nationally, outside of that, I'm not sure if people are going to view him that way because of the lack of Super Bowls, and I just think that's unfair. I think he's going to be remembered as one of the greats. I don't know that he will ever be remembered as fondly as maybe he should be, because of the lack of Super Bowls, like you said. He only got to that one. I think he should be remembered at Peyton Manning level. I mean, frankly, I think he deserves to be remembered like a Peyton Manning does, be, and frankly, like an Aaron Rodgers, too, because he's done something that those guys haven't. I think that's the group, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but I think this year is Aaron Rodgers' opportunity yeah. to potentially pass those guys. Like He's going to need to do more to be able to pass them in the future, but if he if he moves forward and does well here, I, I think he's got a, a, sh- a chance to be able to be remembered above Breeze and Manning, yeah. and that that's what's on the line potentially this year. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. You know what? Let's ask that of Frank Schwab. If Aaron Rodgers is able to win a Super Bowl title this year, if he's able to get this done, MVP and a Super Bowl, where will that put him among that group of Rogers, Manning, and Breeze? We're going to ask Frank Schwab of Yahoo Sports when he joins us coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. I'm Alex Ferrario with a Shane Company Sports Center update. So much NFL news to get into with the Sports Center update. My guy BK hooking me up here. Let's start with college football. Apparently, the Tennessee Volunteers have fired Jeremy Pruitt as the head football coach. So we'll find out what Tennessee is going to be doing in the SEC. NFL wise, Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator for the Rams, he is now the head coach of the Chargers. Pat Mahomes, it looks like he cleared all of his concussion tests that took place last night. And the Houston Texans are interviewing. Eric Bieniemy via Zoom, and if I'm not mistaken, BK Deshaun Watson has told people not to protest in his name. Yeah, apparently there were some marches that were supposed to take place today down in Houston. He has asked for public safety, please don't do that, Texans fans. Yikes, things are not looking good in Houston. Baseball America, top three prospects for the Cardinals are in the Baseball America well, they have three prospects in baseball's top 100 prospects. Uh, Dylan Carlson ranked number nine in those prospects. And then hockey-wise, we got action tonight against the San Jose Sharks. Seven o'clock puck drop, six o'clock pregame show here on 101 ESPN. The Sports Center update brought to you by your friends in the jewelry business, Shane Company and ShaneCo.com. Frank Schwab joins us next to talk a little NFL here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN Sports Talk for St. Louis. We're right back to more of it. It's BK and Ferrario live from the Car Shield Studio on 101 ESPN. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Happy to go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Frank Schwab, Yahoo Sports NFL writer, joining us here on the show. Frank, we always appreciate the time, man. Plenty to get into with you today. How you doing after a nice divisional round weekend? Man, doing good. Uh, excited for these games coming up. It's 
it, it it's let's let's take a moment too to just recognize you know there were many many days when we didn't think we would get to this point in the NFL season right like it was during a summer where are we even going to play so to get to this point where we have four teams left two great games this weekend Super Bowl after that it's it, let's take a moment to appreciate you know the, the the great NFL season we've had so far. It's awesome. I mean, we here in St. Louis, uh, baseball season was the same way. There were certainly yeah. points in time when we weren't sure we were going to be able to get to through the end, especially for the Cardinals in particular. And it was the same way for football. I mean, there was t- there was a point in time when I didn't know if the Ravens were going to be able to make it through. And then at the end, it seemed like every week the Browns would have three new players <laughs> pop up on that list. So uh, thank God we we appear Fingers crossed to officially be getting close to the end. And Frank, would it really be an NFL season if our guy Tom Brady wasn't in the end right here in the championship weekend? It's amazing, man. 14 times now he has made it to championship weekend. I I don't even know what to say about the man anymore, but what can you say about him for us? Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, the, the staff that blew me away, and I'd seen it before, but every time I see it, it, it's just crazy. He now has more conference championship appearances than any other two quarterbacks combined. <laughs> Joe, Joe Montana's second on the list with seven. Nobody else has more than six. So you can combine any two quarterbacks in NFL history, and the most you're going to come up with is 13. And this is number 14 for Brady. I, he's Look, anybody who – we can have the – the argument with the semantics of greatest quarterback ever, who would you, you know, but whatever, this is true. And I don't think this is even arguable. Tom Brady has the greatest NFL resume of all time. I just don't see how you can even come close to arguing that he, to go to a new team, to do this in his first year there, even if they, they lose by 50 on Sunday, it, it really doesn't matter. It just, it just proves what a, an unbelievable player he is. And I think the part of the story that's, it's gotten some attention for sure, but not enough is that he's doing this at an age that basically no other athlete has reached uh, th- this level of play at age 43. Yeah, Bonds had a great season of 42. I believe it was Nolan Ryan was still a, a very effective pitcher at 43, 44, but to do this at 43, like I, I pointed out that every single NFL quarterback throughout the first hundred years of NFL football Every quarterback aged at least 43 had 22 combined touchdowns combined. Tom Brady has 40 by himself this year. It's just like what he's doing at his age and playing. I know he didn't play great yesterday, but over a course of the season, he played very, very well at an age that literally no other quarterback has ever played even remotely good. It's just unbelievable. The guy's an unbelievable athlete. Yeah, Frank, I don't think there's any denying anymore that he's probably the greatest football player of all time. But I want to ask you about the flip side of this. We were just talking about this in the previous segment. Drew Brees and how his legacy is going to be remembered. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Is this guy going to be labeled as a guy who could never win the championship? Or is he still going to be viewed as one of the top quarterbacks in the league? I hope he's viewed as one of the top quarterbacks. I mean, look, football's more than just a quarterback. I don't, you know, I think the fact that he got one, it, it changes the narrative. He's he's not Dan Marino at that point, not Charles Barkley, not Carl Malone. You know, he got the one. So that, that, that changes things. It just does. To me, he checks every box. I, I mean, I don't see... You know, I hate when people, you know, had said, well, it's just the era. And that's why Breeze is putting up these numbers. If it was the era, why did no, why was nobody else putting up multiple 5,000 yard seasons? I think he had at one point, he had like 
six of the 13 5,000 yard seasons of all time or something crazy like that. And I, I mean, he has just been such a remarkable player does have the championship to me. He's the greatest free agent signing in NFL history and among the greatest free agent signings in sports history, because not just, not just that he played really well, but we forget in 2005, the New Orleans saints were, had a foot out the door of moving to San Antonio. And it's, it's, you know, whatever history changes in many different ways for many different reasons. But I think we can safely say that Drew Brees helped save the New Orleans saints in New Orleans. And I think that's going to be his legacy just to be so singularly associated with one team. The only other guy I can think of in the NFL who is basically synonymous with a franchise is John Elway. I'm based in Denver, so I know how important Elway is to the Broncos franchise. Breeze is the same way to the Saints. I think he's going to go down as Mr. Saint. He's going to be that franchise's legacy and his legacy. I think he's a top five all-time quarterback. I hope that people recognize him as a top ten all-time quarterback. Just a phenomenal career. It's also a great sliding door moment in NFL history as well, because if he ends up signing with the Dolphins, who oh, yeah. knows what happens? I mean, there's there's multiple franchises that uh, what happens to the AFC East? Does Brady still have that same dominance over that division over this period? Does that mean Nick Saban is still in the NFL? Do they win potentially a ring, if not multiple rings over there? What happens to the Saints, as you said? I mean, it's it's one of the greatest sliding door moments in NFL history. His free agency back in 05, 06. Absolutely. No question about that because it, yeah, not only affects the NFL game, it affects college game. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> imagine, imagine sitting here right now and, and Nick Saban's never at Alabama. I, I mean, what? Like, I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's the greatest, probably greatest college coach of all time. And you know, you're right. Maybe he never makes it to, back to Alabama because they just start on a run of success. It's also fair to wonder, you know, Sean Payne's a great head coach and, and he and Drew Brees were perfectly matched together. It's also fair to wonder if Drew Brees' career never gets off the ground. Like it did. You know, I mean, he, I think he was going to be a good solid quarterback, but you know, maybe he's not a hall of famer in that situation. Situation does matter. I'm not trying to slight Brees in any single way, but you know, I mean, Joe Montana's not the same quarterback if it doesn't get with Bill Walsh. Uh, Brett Favre's not the same quarterback if he doesn't have Mike Holmgren uh, kind of, you know, kicking him into behind a little bit. And maybe the same is true for Brees. But yeah, you're right. It's, you know, one of the top five what if moments. If, you know, if, if, if the Dolphins sign you know, Drew Brees, multiple franchises, multiple college programs. Who knows? Maybe we get Gus Malzahn as, as Nick Saban. We just don't know. And it's a crazy what if. We're talking to uh, Frank Schwab of Yahoo Sports. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Yahoo Schwab, S-C-H-W-A-B. He's joining us here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Frank, I did want to ask you about the Bills-Ravens game. And we'll, uh, we'll talk plenty about the Bills throughout the week. But I did want to focus briefly on the Ravens because... I love Lamar Jackson. I think he's a really good player. I think he's a really good quarterback. I think he's going to have a really nice career in the NFL, and I'm not trying to take away anything that he has accomplished. But you look at that game, and I once again have to wonder, Frank, does what they do, what the, the style that the Ravens play, does that work in a way that you can win three straight playoff games to win the Super Bowl with a quarterback like Lamar? I love him. I'm not trying to take away from what he's been, and I don't want to denigrate what he is as a player. I just wonder, Frank, as we kind of move forward here, and he's getting closer and closer to getting paid big-time dollars, can you win that way in the playoffs consistently, in your opinion? I do. I 
I'm not one of these people who thinks playoff football is that much different than regular season football. I, I really don't. I, I think that football's football. We put more emphasis on playoff football for sure, but I don't think the games themselves change that much. And, you know, if you look at, at the Ravens record, Lamar Jackson as a starter, I don't know what it's up to, but he's right up there with the greatest three season starts in, in NFL history as far as a team's record goes. A team's record isn't solely owned by a quarterback, but Lamar Jackson's had a huge impact on them. So I just think that, you know, they, they it's, it was a, it, it looks bad when they play bad. It really does. Just because it's, it, it's, it's a style that, if you fall behind, you're not going to catch up. You're, 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 it, they, put, they have a hard time. They do. When they, they need to dictate the pace of the game, the flow of the game. I, I covered a service academy back in the day, and I've always compared it to service academy football where it works. It's a great system. It's sound fundamentally. It's, a, it's, just, it's really an old-school type of, of football, but you, you don't have much margin for error when you play that way. It's just not a team that when, when you're down 14, that's a tough road to come back. And so you, you, they need to play a certain way. They need to get the right matchup. They need to play well in the playoffs and not fall behind. But I do think it can work. I really do. They, it's hard for me to believe a team that went 14-2 and two last season, that you know, finished this season, I, I believe it was 11-5, and five, and, and that was through a lot of adversity as far as COVID and stuff goes. It's hard for me to believe that that team is incapable of winning in the playoffs. It's just I, I think we're quick to criticize because it's different. It's a lot of people out there want this to fail. I'm not saying you. I, yeah. I'm just saying you hear it a lot. I mean, I think you know when Chip Kelly came to the NFL, it was almost like from day one he was just set up to fail. And I'm not saying Chip didn't <laughs> didn't earn a lot of the criticism, but it was just because he was different because that threatens the NFL's kind of mentality of hey, if it was good enough for George Hallis in 1942, it's good enough for us now. I think that we're quick to criticize. And yeah, Lamar Jackson's different. The Ravens are different, uh, but it doesn't mean it's not sound from a football aspect. It doesn't mean they can't win. It's just it, because it's so different. There's just a, a bigger spotlight on him than there would be. Uh, you know, Tennessee Titans who haven't gotten to a Super Bowl, whatever it is. You know, pick a team that it's hard to get to a Super Bowl, and it's just that the Ravens haven't gotten it done in the postseason yet. Frank, uh, let me ask you about an organization that's not in the playoffs right now, but is turning more and more into a clown show, and that's the Houston Texans. <laughs> oh. like, like, what is going on? I mean, now we have fans that are wanting to protest and march because of Deshaun Watson. He's saying that he's at a 10, but then on top of it, they're interviewing Eric Bieniemy. Where does this organization go from here? I, it's stunning. Like, it is just the mismanagement of the Houston Texans is just, it kind of flew under the radar. We were all ripping Bill O'Brien, who really deserves that. Like, let's be honest about that. But even the fact that he was in a position to make the moves he did was kind of symptomatic of bad ownership, bad leadership, just a bad structure altogether. The Houston Texans are a mess. And for them to, I mean, from the outside looking in, it's pretty clear to make this <laughs> judgment that they basically picked Jack Easterby over Deshaun Watson. Like, I'll let that sink in for a second. A guy who was a pastor and a character coach for the Patriots, who <laughs> Bill Belichick, this, during, uh, Bill Belichick doesn't say anything. Bill Belichick during a teleconference this year, it could, probably because it was just kind of common knowledge to him, said, of course, Jack Easterby shouldn't be running personnel. He's not. He's not that guy. And for the Houston Texans to basically pick him over Deshaun Watson, who I think, look, 
if you look at the Houston Texans record this year and blame even a little tiny bit of that on Deshaun Watson, you need to watch more football. He was unbelievable. I think he should get MVP consideration. I'm not kidding. Like he was that good on a bad team. So if you want, if you lose that guy, Oh my goodness. And for Houston, who just lost James Harden, I just feel for them, those fans. Like, you have these two generational guys. You just lost Harden because that went sideways. And now you're in the process well, of maybe losing a lot. Well, Frank, at least they had the Astros in that recent championship that they did the World <laughs> Series, right? <laughs> Hey, you know, I, I'm a Brewers fan. I know you guys are talking Cardinals, but I'm a Brewers fan. If, if banging on trash cans is going to get the Brewers a title, I'm fine. <laughs> Sign me up. He's Frank Schwab. Yahoo Sports is where you find his work. He is an NFL writer over there. Follow him on Twitter at Yahoo Schwab. Frank, we always appreciate the time, man. All the best to you and the family, and we'll look forward to talking with you again soon. No doubt, guys. Absolutely. That is Frank Schwab joining us here on 101 ESPN. <laughs> what an awesome weekend of football. The funny thing is, you look back – I don't know that outside of the Chiefs game, any of them were particularly good games, like close, good, well-played games. I was hoping the Bills and Ravens one would be, and that one wasn't. I thought it was going to be the game of the year. Yeah, it was terrible. I loved the Bills in that game. Bet my buddy that the Bills would win, and I feel good about that, but it wasn't a good game. And you had, basically, that game was decided on defense and the Lamar Jackson injury. And then the chiefs game could have been more of a blowout if not for the Mahomes injury. And they just had to hold on in the end to be able to beat the Browns. It was just a kind of a clumsy Packers game was done by the, by the half. I mean, I felt like I was done watching a lot of these games by halftime. Yeah, I I think that's, that's fair. And it sets up for some awesome storylines moving forward, but those games in and of themselves, the actual football on the field wasn't all that intriguing, even though the storylines that came out of it were with Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie coming up next. Six, five, seven, eight, Oh, is the air comfort service tax line questions and answers is coming up next on one Oh one ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Kylie 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for questions and answers. I think this one's really interesting. From the 314, guys, is it just me or is the reason that the NFL games over the weekend were lackluster because there's no fans living and dying with every breath in the stands right now? I do think there is a little something to that. I think you could tell the difference this weekend for Ariel with like Green Bay. There were not your usual 60,000 fans in the mm-hmm. stands, but I think they had like six to 8,000 fans in the stands and it was different. It was better because you could have those people there. You could tell that there was a little bit more of an environment. Same thing for Buffalo. Kansas City had some of that. I do think that helped, but it's not the same. It's not the same as it would be with 70,000 in KC, 60,000 in Buffalo. It's just a different feel. And I think there is a little something to that being the home field advantage isn't what it would typically be. Yeah. I mean, look, even if the game felt over at halftime, you'd still be intrigued and the fans would at least get the energy up a little bit. But I mean, frankly, it's just I mean, even the fans in the stands for the Packers game and the Bills game and the in the Chiefs game, like the excitement was there for me once kickoff started because it actually felt like you don't sit there and think, oh man, there's not a, you don't have a full out stadium, right? Like it, it felt somewhat normal, but as that game went on, 
it just started to die down because there was there was just no competitiveness like that Browns and Chiefs game had. Like all of those games felt like in the Bucks and Saints, of course, because that one came down to that last interception. But those first two on Saturday, it just it didn't have that feel to it that you would expect with those two matchups. Yeah, six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service X line for questions and answers. Uh, six five seven eight zero guys from the six one eight. Will we see two game sweeps between Cup contending teams or? Do you think we'll see more splits like we saw between the Blues and the Avalanche on Friday night? Alex, I know this is a big thing that you're looking at and a big picture sense for this hockey season. We'll talk a little bit more about it coming up in the one o'clock hour. But what do you think? Are we going to see more of these splits between teams as we go forward here? I think we really are. I mean, I was fascinated by this over the weekend, BK, especially after the Blues got, you know, just just pounced on by the Avalanche. You're thinking okay, but how many other teams are going through this? And if you look at a lot of these matchups, I mean, look, Vegas swept their series with the Anaheim Ducks, but that second game, Anaheim was winning all the way up until the final, like seven seconds of the game. They gave up a goal with a minute left and then in overtime, Anaheim lost it. But I mean, there was only two or three teams, I think that actually won both series or both games in the series, like easily. So I think you're going to see a lot of these. I think it's going to come down to how much prep that you can get. But what the, we saw that the Blues suffer from of trying to keep that competitiveness going and making sure that you're on your game every night. I think that's what a lot of teams are going to deal with. So I, I think we're going to see more baseball series splits, which is going to make that two through four spot for postseason positioning. So intriguing coming down to those final couple of weeks of the season. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think I'm kind of leaning that direction as well. The other thing that's going to come into play in some of those games, not now, but later on in the season, I think the team that wins that first game, you're going to see some of the backup goaltenders in those second games as well, which will lead to, I mean, it's just more likely that the the other team will win some of those games. Right. So that's something well, to keep that's in mind as be, well. That's going to be the fire from other teams too, of you lose that first game. If you lose that second one, that's a, that's an eight point swing of you being out of the postseason and you can't let that happen. Six, five, seven, eight, oh, is the air comfort service tax line. I like this question from the six, one, eight guys. Who do you think whenever we look back on all time greats, who will be viewed as the better quarterback, Drew Brees or John Elway? I think that's the right realm. Yeah. That's the right category that we should be looking at for Breeze. I, I think you look at, I'd put Breeze I, there. I think I would go Elway. It's really close, man. I mean, really close. They yeah. both won. So Elway won the two Super Bowls, both at the back end of his career. But much like Breeze this year, if the Saints had won it, it wouldn't have been Breeze that was the driving force, kind of like Manning yeah. as well. It wouldn't have been uh, Breeze that was the main reason. It wasn't Elway in the final one that he, that really won that for him. It was Terrell Davis and the defense. They both have one MVP. They're both one-time first-team All-Pros. I think I would go Elway just because in that time period, I always felt like he was the biggest threat in the AFC. Yeah. Felt like that was the guy. Breeze was always kind of vying for that with Rodgers or Manning or Brady. And so he's kind of a victim of his own circumstances in terms of when he played. I think I would go Elway over Breeze, but it's real close. Yeah, I feel like though that's more justice for Breeze because he's kept his name 
kind of above water with all of those guys doing what they've done. Rodgers with the multiple MVPs, Brady with the multiple Super Bowls. But I mean, like Frank said, I mean, how many quarterbacks have had the multiple 5,000 plus passing yards that Drew Brees has had? And I mean, the fact that he has done this and look, I understand he's got Alvin Kamara and he had Reggie Bush and he's got Michael Thomas. Like he's had an incredible team with him, but to be able to still do that. And the part that still fascinates me, BK, is the fact that he is a a short, small quarterback and can still just heave that ball downfield and make those connections. So I would put Breeze there, but I've seen a lot more of Breeze than I saw of Elway. It's so funny too, man, because I mean, I was able to at the back end of Elway's career, watch him because I mean, just age wise, right? You're the same way. Um, I was able to see him at the back end of his career. And that was really the start of my football watching experience, but I didn't see him in his prime. And you're able to go back and watch these things. You're able to watch documentaries and stuff about him and the football lives and all of those things. So I have, a, I think, a pretty good understanding of how he was viewed at the time. And so I can base my understanding of Elway on that. Yeah. But if I, I would recommend everybody goes back and does this. Go look out. Go look at John Elway's numbers from his career. It's wild because you look back and it's like from 1986 through 92. Zero times, zero times in that stretch did John Elway have more than 20 touchdown passes. We're not talking like 40, 50, the way that we were looking at guys now. It's just such a different game, and it's such a different way that you have to judge those quarterbacks. I mean, many of those seasons, Elway threw more interceptions than he did touchdowns. (laughs) And so we view him as one of the best of all time, and yet if you look at the numbers, you will not see that story portrayed through the numbers just because the game, I mean, that's... It's only 30 years ago. It's a long time, but it's only 30 years ago. And it's just a completely different game now than it was then. And that's it, too. I mean, you think of the game back then of how defensemen just went out and tried to murder the quarterback as much as they could and how teams went heavy defense over offense. You had the running game that was that was highly kind of talked about. And then you have Elway who's doing that. So, yeah, I mean, I think that. But if that's the realm we're talking about, then good for Drew Brees, because he should be in that realm. Later this week, I'll try to go through kind of the modern era to put together my list of where these guys drink. I'm I think sure Brady will be number one for you. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. Brady Tom lover. Brady, the guy that has been to more championship games than the next two greatest quarterbacks ever combined. You're just a Brady lover. He'll probably be at the top of my <laughs> list. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, I thought it was really interesting hearing Bill DeWitt uh, Jr. on with Danny Mack earlier today. He all but confirmed the Cardinals have made an offer to both Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright. We'll react to that. Plus, if you could re-sign any one Cardinals player to a long-term deal, who would it be? All of that coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. So Bill DeWitt Jr. was on with Danny Mac earlier today. If you missed any of that conversation, you should check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com and the free 101 ESPN app. It is all brought to you by I Promise. I wanted to react to a couple of the things that he said earlier today, Alex, because he did talk about what the Cardinals plan to do from now until the start of the regular season, start of spring training for them. And Dan asked him, hey, listen, you know, A lot of Cardinals fans right now, if they could ask you a question, Bill, would be, what's the plan with Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina? And here's what Bill DeWitt 
Jr. had to say on with Scoops with Danny Mac earlier today about where the Cardinals stand right now with both Yachty and Wayno. Hopeful that they will come back. Uh, made them both offers. Uh, and I think they just want to see what the market is. And, you know, they may choose to go elsewhere. That's that's their decision. And someone may come in and offer them more and they may choose to take it. So, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. I find that really interesting because he just confirmed publicly what we did not know publicly previously. We knew that the Cardinals had offered Yadier Molina. That was reported. We did not know for certain that the Cardinals, at least from anything that I've seen, that the Cardinals had officially offered, made an offer, a tangible offer, to Adam Wainwright. That's the owner. He's not just saying that Mm willy-nilly. He knows that this has taken place, and he's saying it publicly for a reason. He, you got to think from the mind of Bill DeWitt Jr., right? Why am I saying this on radio in St. Louis right now? He's saying it because he wants Cardinals fans to know, listen, it's not that we are completely setting aside Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina. We want them to be back. We've given them offers. Now, what are those offers? We don't know that. We, we don't know what has been offered to Adam Wainwright. Maybe it is a million dollars and it's something he was never going to accept. Right. That's possible. But the fact that they have offered them at least shows you some inclination that they would like to have them back. I still, we talked about this on Friday after Yachty's comments, I still believe Yachty's going to be back. And I still do not believe that Adam Wainwright is going to be back. I don't think that they are, they have any urgency to bring Wayno back because of the number of arms that they have. But with, with Yachty, I think it's a little bit different. And I do, especially after hearing Bill DeWitt Jr. earlier today, I do think that they're going to be able to bring him back. See, I'm starting to be very hesitant on both of these guys now. Like, I'm flipping back over the fence again, BK. Like, I mean, Friday I, I felt after hearing Polo talk that I'm like, okay, well, maybe maybe there is a lot more to this than we don't know. But look, if Bill DeWitt's saying this, and, and we don't know that if this is a new contract offer or if this is the one that was disrespectful to Yachty or yep. Melina, we don't know that. But I'll tell you this, if the contract offer that he is speaking of is the only one that they've gotten. And Adam Wainwright's telling publicly that, hey, I haven't received an offer. And if Yachty's saying, hey, it's a disrespectful offer and I will go to retirement if I don't have a contract that I agree with. Cardinals aren't going to be budging, it sounds like. It sure sounds like from the way that Bill DeWitt phrased that with Dan McLaughlin was, hey, we offered them the money we feel is doable to our salary restrictions this season. If they want it, we want them back. If they don't, if they decide to go elsewhere, well, then we wish them luck. Like, I'm wondering now, hearing Bill DeWitt, and again, this is just me. Apparently, I'm very easy with this because one person talks and I'll follow along with it, but... Now I'm really curious because if they've only offered them both one contract offers and it hasn't gone anywhere since, I don't know if there's going to be any initiative from the Cardinals to say, hey, we're going to give you something else. Because if they're waiting for the market to show themselves BK and it's less, and then they go back and say, okay, well, we'll do this, then wouldn't the Cardinals say, yeah, maybe we're going to go a little less yeah, too. It's, and it's hard to know. It's impossible to know, in fact. And you, you mentioned the Cardinals need to know what they have available, and Bill DeWitt Jr. was asked about that. You know, where are you right now in terms of your financial commitments? When will you know more, with more certainty what you can undertake going into next season? Here's what Bill DeWitt Jr. said earlier today on with Danny Mack. Is under contract. We know what the payroll uh, of that group is, and it's you know it's substantial. Once we sort out what we think our revenue is going to be, we, it'll enable us to make decisions on what we might be able to add. So basically, whenever they know what they're going to have in the stands next year, they will have a better picture of what the team can look like. 
Here's the problem. We don't have any certainty on that. And I don't suspect that we're going to have any certainty on that. The Cardinals first spring training game is scheduled right now. We'll see if it actually takes place, but it's scheduled for February 27th. Do I believe that on February 27th, the Cardinals are going to know with any sort of certainty on April 1st, what their situation is going to look like with fans in the stands? No, no, I do not. And so when you look at it through that lens, and that's where the ownership is looking I don't know that they are going to have any sort of significant undertaking in terms of salary that they will add to the payroll. They are already committed to roughly $165 million next year. I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of change to that. I think that's pretty much where they're going to be expected at. See, hearing him talk, it makes me feel there. This has nothing to do with fans. Listen to this quote again, BK. Most of our club is is under contract. We know what the payroll uh, of that group is, and it's, you know, it's substantial. Right there. Uh, Him talking about we know what the payroll of our team is right now, and it's substantial. That screams an owner that's saying, hey, we only have a certain amount of money we can spend this offseason. I think he's reminding Cardinals fans right there subtly, hey, we are spending a lot of money. It's and not I, that we haven't spent. Right. They are spending. Now, it's not the way that we would like them to spend, but they are spending the money. It's just a matter of getting good players with that well, money. And I think the right that's players. the warning is not a warning, but I think that's kind of the, the yellow flag saying, hey, guess what? We are spending money. The roster is already at a substantial amount, and I don't see us going out there and making other moves. John Mosellek has said that, you know, the market's going to change a little bit. It'll shift. Spring training will come along. If there's going to be a move to be made after hearing Bill DeWitt talk and say the substantial amount of money on this payroll, it's going to be a guy that comes into a spring training with a roster invite that says, okay, you can make the club if you go out and show out. So if that is, let's let's operate under that assumption, okay? But we already were. (laughs) So... You know what you're going to have at first base is going to be Goldschmidt. Second base, you assume, is going to be Edmund. Shortstop, you have with Paul DeYoung. What are you doing at third? Carpenter. Carpenter starting. Who's starting at catcher for you? I think right now, Kisner. And, and then, then you just bring in somebody you else? find a veteran backup who's going to be backing them up. Don't be surprised if Wheaties comes back around. Is that enough? And, and I'm asking this in all seriousness. In this division, what they have currently... I love the pitching staff. I think they're going to have, I heard, uh, I think it was Derek Gould on his podcast over the weekend. I was listening to it. He said he thinks that this, this bullpen has the potential to be the best in baseball. Oh, I agree with that. I agree. I think the rotation can be really, really good, especially if they're able to get some innings under their belt. I have some serious questions about the defense. If Matt Carpenter is going to be playing at third every day. And I have some serious reservations about the offense having a significant step forward going into this upcoming year. So as good as I think the the pitching can be, I got some big questions about basically every other aspect of the team if they don't add any other sort of additions. I have questions about the defense. I'm not concerned about the defense, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know what Tommy Edmonds going to look like at second base. I mean, we've seen the best of Tommy. We've seen the worst of Tommy. Um in third base, I mean, look, Carpenter is not great. Like, he's not a above average or substantial third baseman. I know we all thrive in pain when we watch him throw a ball. But he's also not god-awful. That will, he's pretty bad. He's not horrible that's going to ruin your season. He was horrible at first base ruining your season. Correct. Third base, I think he's average enough that can get you through a season. Okay. We're, we disagree on that, <laughs> but we can move forward. Well, we disagree on a lot with Matt Carpenter, apparently. <laughs> Outfield-wise, I mean, defense is the defense. And f- frankly, catching would be my biggest concern because, one, I don't know how this catcher is going to manage his pitching staff, and, two, I just don't know defensively. Are you going to have people running on you nonstop? And that that's my worry is that the Cardinals' strength – 
is taken down a notch by the lack of additions that they have made. Like, if you do not bring back Yadier Molina, your pitching staff gets worse. Like, uh, objectively, you're, you're not going to have as good of a pitching staff because we know Yadier Molina makes a difference with those guys. If you don't have somebody to play third base that is good defensively, and I we can quibble on where we think Matt Carpenter is, yeah. we both agree he's not in the good category no, as a defensive third not. baseman right now at this point in his career. So... If you don't have that, well, you just got worse defensively in the infield. You got worse defensively at catcher. You got worse calling the game with your catcher. You also don't have an offense that can allow your pitchers to pitch from ahead with a lead. And now you're putting a lot of pressure on the pitchers to be perfect. And oh, by the way, you don't have a whole lot of strikeout pitchers either, especially in the rotation. You got Flaherty. He's a strikeout guy. Who else in this rotation right now projects to be a strikeout pitcher? You don't really have one, really. So that's that's one of my big concerns about this team is you're putting a lot of pressure on a pitching staff that is good, I believe. But the guys around them look make them look worse than what they could be at their peak if they had that those pieces around. I, unfortunately, I, I agree with everything that you're saying. And, and unfortunately, this is the season I think that we are all preparing for because mm. there's not a guy out there that's going to make any of that better. There's not a guy at third base that's going to make that any better. It's not a guy at catcher that's going to make that any better if it's not Yachty or Molina. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. It's 11:13. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. I teased this coming into this segment. We'll do it in the next one. Uh, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for in or out. In or out, Ferrario. If the Cardinals could re-sign any of their young players to a long-term extension right now, the guy that you would offer that contract to is Alex Reyes. We'll get in or out on that. Plus, some of yours, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. In or out's coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now, here's BK and Ferrario. Seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line for in or out. Darren Pang's going to join us coming up in about 15 minutes to talk about what in the world happened to the Blues on Friday night. We weren't talking about it, BK. And why it's going to get better tonight Damn in a straight. game that you'll hear right here on 101 ESPN. Blues versus Sharks coming up at 6 o'clock for pregame coverage with Alex Ferrario. But right now, let's dive into some in or out. Alex, in or out, if you could extend any one current young player on the Cardinals roster, if you could offer them an extension, the guy that you would go to is Alex Reyes. Now, let me explain this a little bit where I'm coming from before you give your official answer. I think that you could view the current Alex Reyes situation with what you could compare it to what the Cardinals did with Lance Lynn back in 2015. Lance Lynn had three years of arbitration remaining and the Cardinals offered him a three-year $23 million deal. Now, at the time, Lynn, Lynn was a little bit more of a known commodity. He yeah. had already thrown, he had started 30 games the three seasons prior. So he was a known commodity. They knew what they had with him, but they believed they were getting him on the cheap compared to what they would have to pay him eventually in arbitration. It's a little different, obviously, with Alex Reyes. He's got a lot less certainty. But part of that is why you could potentially get a deal done with him. I think if you went to him right now and said, Reyes, we want to sign you to a five-year deal worth about... million. I think there's a chance he would sign that deal. He's going to make $900,000 this year. He avoided arbitration. The Cardinals were able to come to a deal with him. Let's remember, he's only 26 years old right now. So in or out, Alex, 
there was one young Cardinals player that you could sign to a long-term extension, Alex Reyes would be that guy. Yeah, I think that's a great option, especially if I'm getting it for that term. When you said three years and 23 that Lance Lynn got, it's a that's lot. a little too much for a guy that I don't know what he's going to be and if he's going to deal with more injuries. But if I can get Alex Reyes for $5 million for the next five years, that's a really good deal if he's in your rotation. And if he's not, he's going to be a weapon for you in your bullpen. So I think that's a great idea. Now, when you when you said the question, a couple names came to mind. One, Dylan Carlson, but I think you still have a lot of controllable yeah. years with him, so you don't need to get into that. But what about two guys like a Dakota Hudson or a Giovanni Gallegos? Gallegos is interesting. He's still under club control this year, and then he has three years of arbitration. I, I typically don't want to do this with guys that I project to be relievers long-term. I'm willing to go year to year with those guys because we know we just saw it with Jordan Hicks relievers break. And so I'm, I'm good going year to year and finding out what that guy has as he gets for uh, moves forward. Who was the other one that Dakota you said? Hudson's the one that I really would like, but because of the time and John, it makes you a little nervous, but you might be able to get this on the cheap end because he's a legitimate two starter for this rotation in the future. I would wait until next year. Let's see what he looks like next season. And it's going to make it more expensive by doing this. What you're saying is potentially getting him on the cheap and you would be able to buy out the arbitration years and hopefully get him signed up for another extra year. I, I would lean Reyes over Hudson. Mm-hmm. They're the same age right now. Reyes hopefully is past his injury issues. Hudson just had his injury issue. I would give Hudson another year. Let's see what he looks like next year going into spring training. And if he looks good, that's when I would approach him about a potential extension. So I hear you. I, I could I could get behind it. I'm certainly not shooting it down, but my priority would be number one for me, Alex Reyes. Yeah. Number two, of course, as we talked about previously, would be Harrison Bain. Oh, of course. Ten years, hundred million dollars, right? That's what you said? <laughs> That's what I said. Six five seven eight oh is the air comfort service tax line for in or out. In or out, Alex. We saw the single worst rule in all of professional sports show its head yesterday when the Cleveland Browns fumbled into the end zone. And the ball was given to the Kansas City Chiefs at the 20-yard line. This w- this pissed me off so much watching that game. That is the dumbest rule in all of professional sports. Yep. And I will not hear an argument for a, a second. Like, how is that? He was in the end zone. The ball crossed, crossed the threshold. And it gets knocked out. And on top of it, on top of it, BK, that was a helmet to helmet. Like they were talking about it. That was a helmet to a helmet. The defensive player does in that spot. You're right. It was. They never call that. And part of of it is because the offensive player is also going so far down. There's nothing the defender can do there. Right. Like to to be able to make that play, that is the only way that the defensive player can do anything with the ball carrier. So I do understand that, and they don't call it very often. But in the end zone, that that rule shouldn't count them because if there's nothing else the defender do, and that's what forced, because that's what essentially forced the fumble. It's not like he punched the ball out of his hand. It was helmet to helmet, and it knocked the football out. That should that rule should be negated in that sense. It. This is a very easy fix as well. Anywhere else on the field, if you fumble out of bounds and the ball goes out of bounds, it reverts back to where the player was previously. Right. If you want to penalize a player for reaching into the end zone and you you think that there should be a penalty for that, basically, okay, fine. Take it back to the 10 or 20-yard line for that team. It's absurd that it is a change of possessions to the opposing team, and not only do they get the ball, 
They get the ball at the 20. Instead of getting the ball where the opposing player fumbled it, so at the one in this case, the Chiefs got to move the ball 20 yards in advance, and they were going the other way. It's crazy. Yeah. There is no reason why this is a rule other than the fact that this is just what we've always done. Yeah. And we do this sometimes with certain rules in sports where we're like, hey, that's how it's always been, so that's how it's going to be. Why? Right. Have we ever stopped to ask the question why? Right? The yeah. famous the famous line from Jurassic Park. We we <laughs> we always thought about what it could be. We never asked wh- whether we should do it or not. Right. It's what it is for this with with the NFL. It's it's stupid. It's, it's a dumb rule. It's the same thing that we've dealt with for so long in the NFL of what is a catch rule, right? Like we've we've had that for but so long. This is easier. This, this is, is easier, easier to clarify. The, what is a catch has so many different we have gotten so good with replay now that there are legitimate questions on that that make it difficult to determine in any scenario what a catch really but is, we right? make This it, is easy. We make it more difficult than what it should be for that. And this, they are making it a lot more difficult than what it needs to be for something as simple as resolving this. And look, this didn't dictate the outcome of that game, but sure, it sure, it hell, sure as hell changed an awful lot of what would have happened game planning wise for Kevin Stefanski and the Cleveland Browns going into that second half. Absolutely. It, it, it was and you guys know I'm a, I'm a Chiefs fan, but watching that play, I felt awful for Cleveland fans. Yeah, it was brutal because that it I know football is not about fairness necessarily, but that was completely unfair. What happened to them in that spot? And it would have completely changed the complexion of that game. It was right. It's absolutely ridiculous. By the way, six, five, seven, eight, oh, is the air comfort service tax line from the six, three, six guys. The ball was knocked loose before breaking the plane. It did not cross the end zone. Of course, that's why it was a fumble. Um, if it did cross the plane, then it would have been a touchdown. But that's the problem. I want to incentivize players to reach for the end zone. Yeah. And you see it all the time. You heard it after the game. Kevin Stefanski came out and said, listen, I'm not I'm not trying to demean Higgins, the, the player, the Richard Higgins, the player that ultimately fumbled the ball. But our rule in that spot is not to reach the ball out. He doesn't want his players to reach out because of that possibility. Mm-hmm. That's that shouldn't be the case. You should want the players to reach the ball out because it creates excitement, right? The idea of this guy is right there at the end zone. Let's see if he can cross the goal line. That's what those markers are there for. And the, the fact that we are still doing this in 2021 is wild to me. I hope that they take a look at it in the offseason. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line for in or out. In or out for Ario. You didn't know who Tyler Huntley was when he entered the game for the Ravens on Saturday night. 100% in on this because I knew nothing about this. For a minute there, I thought this was the guy who was the backup to Rodgers, Brett Huntley. Huntley. I'm like, oh, that's who this is. Yeah, and he's been great. Or he was great when he filled in for Rodgers. And then I'm like, nope, Tyler Huntley. Who the hell is this guy? This is like, I have never heard of this person. Like, are we getting another like backup XFL quarterback or grocery store clerk that we don't know about? Yeah. So the funny thing is he was really good at Utah. And maybe this says more about me than anything else. Yeah. You could have put this guy into a lineup with four other random NFL quarterbacks. Like just third stringers who had played at like Old Dominion or whatever, right? If you would have put all of them into a lineup for me, I would have had no clue which one was Tyler Huntley. None. No clue whatsoever. I knew nothing about the gentleman. Apparently, he was all Pac-12 last year. I was unaware. Damn. I feel like I watch a lot of football. Yes, you A do. lot of football. I could have told you nothing about Tyler Huntley prior to Saturday night. And then he came in. And looked pretty good. He he looked okay for the Ravens, all things considered. It was it was a pretty wild scenario, but I had no clue 
who Tyler Huntley was in that spot. <laughs> hey, no clue whatsoever. Hey, he kept him alive, I guess. That's all that you can ask from a guy like that. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line for in or out. In or out, Ferrario. The Chiefs on Sunday, going forward on fourth and one, were a reminder to all of the other teams to stay aggressive once you get into the playoffs. Hell yeah. And every team that lost in the wild card round is probably watching that thinking, man, we should have did that when we had the opportunity. The best part about that move was the fact that on Twitter that night, or afternoon, I should say, everyone was talking about how big cojones Andy Reid has because of that. And rightfully so. I mean, in that situation, I mean, you have to have the utmost confidence. And if that's Patrick Mahomes under center, yeah, okay, fine, I'm going for it. But you have Chad Henney there. I mean, you have to be pretty damn brave to make that move because on the flip side, you're on their, you're on your side of the 50-yard line. Yeah. So things could get real ugly real quick. So props to Andy Reid. Hopefully every other coach in the NFL took some lessons from it. I mean, you look back a week ago at some of the decisions that were made, especially from the Titans, punting from the opposing side of the 50. The Steelers down, what, four touchdowns, and they decide to punt at the 50? Unbelievable. It, it was crazy. Some of the decisions that were made last week were clearly made with the idea of not losing the game. Right as opposed to going out and winning the game. And that's what Andy Reid did in that spot. You have fourth and one at your own 48. You're up by five points with a minute 15 to go. And with Chad Henney in the game (laughs) and the broadcast, if you were watching on CBS last night or listening here on 101, you heard the the broadcasters were like, well, they're probably just trying to get them to jump jump off sides. Mm -hmm. That's probably what they're doing here. I'm sure they'll let this clock run down and then they'll take a timeout, decide what they want to do. Nope. Absolutely not what they did. Chad Henney, Drack rolls around, Tyreek Hill wide open. That was awesome. Yep. I didn't see it coming. I thought there was no chance in hell they do that with Chad Henney in the game, but good on Andy Reid. For like you said, having some massive cojones. That's what the NHL. That's what the NFL needs. I mean, they need that excitement rather than all these dumb punting opportunities at the 50-yard line when it's a blowout. Like, make it exciting. Yeah. And he he decided to go out and win it as opposed to having his defense doing it for him. I don't think they were going to get a stop. I think Cleveland was going to win that game if they didn't get that. So uh, big time play for him for sure. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, let's talk to our guy, Darren Pang, Blues analyst for Fox Sports Midwest. What did he see that went wrong for the Blues on Friday night? I know everything, but what specifically went wrong for them on Friday night? Plus, how do they turn Turn it around going into tonight. Talk to Darren Pang about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. Happy to dive out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Joined via that with Blues analyst for Fox Sports Midwest. He is Darren Pang joining us here on the show. Panger, how you doing today, my friend? I'm doing very well, thank you. I just got back from Enterprise Center. Um, nice to be back in uh, in uh, the big arena and uh, watching the boys practice. And and then uh, we'll spend the afternoon, get some notes ready, and 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 truly, it will be you know just that much more invigorating to go down to the rink tonight and to be there live in the building instead of a studio and and to be uh, to watching this uh, two game set against uh, the San Jose Sharks. I did want to ask you about that. I mean, you guys were not on the road with the Blues in Colorado. What was the difficulty, Panger, of broadcasting that way and 
I mean, how much easier is it going to be for you guys to finally be in the building to be able to watch the Blues once again? Well, you know, number one, and I know I talked to I talked to Curbs a, a little bit, and I've talked to Joey about this uh, on the radio side, um, and I think we're a little bit more fortunate on the on the TV side, and, and just in terms of the timing of the actual game, um, you know, syncing it up. Uh, if, if you're doing the radio and you're 30 seconds behind the TV. Uh, or, or the video that you're getting from the arena. Um, I, I think the play-by-play guys are really challenged here. Um, I, I know that we're in our brand-new studio at Fox Sports Midwest at, uh, um, at, uh, at uh, Ballpark Village. Brand-new. It's wonderful. It's really, really nice. Uh, but there are just some glitches to get over. And i, I got to tell you, a nate-nothing loss uh, on the road while the home team, the Colorado Avalanche, are running your camp, basically – you know, they're dictating the feel of the broadcast. It was not an easy one. It was no fun for anybody. It was no fun for us broadcasting the game. So I know that we'll we'll get over some of these glitches and, and figure out better ways to do it and better ways to bring our St. Louis fans uh, the storylines that we want to, you know, that we want to deliver and the ones that they want to see. But I, we, I think we all just ask for a little patience early on because it is certainly a challenge for, for all of us. Tonight will be better. We'll have our own Fox Sports Midwest trucks there Tim Paps and Phil Mollick, our director and producers, uh, they're, they're there on site. Our cameras are there. We'll control the show tonight. And I think our main responsibility, too, though, is being fair to San Jose because now they're picking up our feed. So mm-hmm. we just saw it on the other side with Colorado. And now, you know, we've got to do a, a good, good job of feeding them some stuff as well. Panger, speaking of the fans, put yourself in a player's shoe tonight, coming into the Enterprise Center for the first time in a game action since March 9th, but they also are going to have 500 fans in the stands. Now, 300 are the frontline workers, 200 are family and friends, but what's that environment going to be like for these guys? Well, I think it'll it'll, it'll be odd still, you know. I mean, I think it'll be odd for the for the people going in the frontline workers and boy, what a great honor it is to, to have them, you know, be participants in watching the game live. Um, and, and, you know, for the family, for the wives, for the, you know, the mothers, I know Jaden Schwartz's mom, Carol is, is here from, from Saskatchewan. Just, just to have them there to be able to watch it will be special, but you know, a lot. I mean, this, this should be 18,700 or whatever it is there. And instead there's going to be uh, less than 500. So, I, 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 you know, I think there might be times where, you know, even as a broadcaster, it'll be odd being there because you'll feel like you're talking really loud, which we do. Um, and then you're wondering, oh, boy, can these guys hear what we're saying? And, and you know, is it going to kind of reverberate throughout the whole arena? I know we'll be able to hear Curbs' voice uh, <laughs> down at, at our level. The players will be able to hear Curbs do the play-by-play. I know that for sure. We're talking to Darren Pang, Blues analyst for Fox Sports Midwest, joining us here on 101 ESPN. All right, Darren, let's let's dive into the play a little bit. You you briefly mentioned it. The Blues, eh, rough game on Friday night, to say the least. That's not the team that we expect to see very often this season. What went wrong in your mind? I mean, I, it's easy to say everything, but when you saw them on Friday night, what what did you see specifically that went wrong in that game for them? Well, they weren't they, they weren't ready, and that that's what surprised me the most um, is the yeah. I mean, I watched the 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 two nights before Connor McDavid shows up for for Edmonton. Everybody's expecting Connor McDavid to be on fire. He gets shut out. He gets no points. They lose the game five to two. Well, the next night, I mean, everybody in the hockey world is knowing that Connor McDavid is going to be all over it. Sure enough, he was scores three goals. 
So here we are, you know, the Blues go into Colorado, win, shut down Nathan McKinnon, shut down the big boys, play an absolutely perfect hockey game, dominated five on five. So I I, I guess the part that surprised me and everybody else was that they weren't prepared for that. I mean, you knew that Colorado was going to make it the most miserable game in the world. Um, The only guy that was prepared to play that hockey game, in my opinion, was Jordan Bennington. And he was, you know, at at 2 nothing. Um, we're in the game. And in fact, with uh, 12 minutes and 24 seconds left in the second period, it's still a 2-0 game. And the next goal is, you know, from, from, you know, whenever there's a 2-0 deficit or lead, I always say the next goal is going to win the game. It's just an old thing that you can say. I mean, you're either up 3-0 or, or maybe the score is 2-1. And I felt like if the Blues score to make it 2-1, they're off and running now. Now they're going to find their game quickly. But instead... You know, they mismanage the puck in their own zone. They turn it over, and it's 3 nothing. then it's 4 nothing. And, you know, really by that point, then that's the end of it. Now they've got to make a decision to change the goalie. Now you put in a goalie that's never played in the NHL, and the avalanche continue to roll. So um, so that that's, for me, the, the number one thing is they they really gave up an opportunity where their goalie was the first star in a game uh, that's only 2 nothing, and somehow they couldn't find their game. And, and that, that shocked the daylights out of me, to be honest with you. Panger, it just looked like that the guys were just out of whack on the ice together. Like, defensively, there was a, a couple of just miscommunications where both Pareko and Krug went for the puck behind the net and left somebody mm-hmm. wide open in the slot. The same can be said for the forwards. Do you think that there was kind of a little bit of a chemistry flaw there of where guys just really weren't feeling it on the ice together? I do believe there's going to, it's going to take some time. I do believe that. I think there's you can practice all you want. They played the one game. They were pretty sharp. Um, it's the moments that you're not on your A game um, that you try to do something that's that's um, uh, that's not there. You, you try to do too much uh, to make up a play. And I, I felt like that's that was one of the you know one of the areas in the game in which they they weren't very good at. Um, and I noticed tonight, uh, you know, Craig Berube's going back to familiarity. He's going back to Sanford with O'Reilly. Uh, he's going back with Shen and Schwartz. He's going back with Bozak and Thomas, and obviously the Barbashev and Sunquist together. So, so you know, those are things to keep in mind. I think it's a smart play by the coach. Uh, familiarity is uh, is what gets you through these moments when maybe the chemistry is is still a bit of a fight. We're talking with Darren Pang here on 101 ESPN. Darren, what did you see on uh, Friday night? from Mike Hoffman because obviously not the debut that he was hoping for, but defensively it it seemed like maybe there's still a little bit of work to do there. What did you see from Mike Hoffman in his blues debut? Yeah, I saw a guy playing his first real game with this team and, you know, and a tough one for him to jump into in all fairness to him. Um, You know, he doesn't play the first game and they play a perfect game, a St. Louis blues game. You know, now he jumps into the lineup and there's a lot of pressure, you know, and, and the game just, it doesn't unfold the way, the way you know anybody was anticipating it to unfold. So you know right away the head coach who, who starts Hoffman with Thomas and Schwartz and you know as the as the game re- degresses regresses, you know he ends up with another couple of different line mates. So you know obviously that's not the kind of game you're you're looking for from uh, uh, from Mike Hoffman. But I, I did talk to Robert Thomas this morning about about that, and I and I just I quite simply asked, um, is it a case of a new player? being a little bit too unselfish right now. And, and he sort of agreed with me. He said that, you know, we're talking more and more. He's a shooter. You know, Deeker's Deek, passers pass, and shooters shoot. If you're a shooter, shoot the puck. And, and don't think that you've got to, 
you know, make that pretty pass to somebody else. If you're a shooter, shoot it. They're expecting him to shoot it. He's one of the best in the league at it. So I, I just think that it's going to take a little bit more time in that situation. So he's been moved from that number one power play to the second group. And I think as we go along here, we're going to find that he's, he's, he's going to be matched up with a lot of different scenarios until he finds his game and, and, and then he'll be off and running. Panger, I know the one thing that the guys talked about yesterday after their practice up at Centene was special teams, specifically the penalty kill. And we all know how that went on Friday against Colorado. I'm curious from your perspective, kind of what's changed? Because two years ago, it was the ninth best penalty kill in the National Hockey League. Last year, they finished as 18th. You're kind of seeing it slowly kind of start to drop in the NHL. Why is that? Very good question. Um you know, and, and, and let's, let's, let's be fair here. Um, you know, the captain was a, the former captain was a, a heck of a penalty killer. Yeah. Heck of a penalty killer. You know, uh, he was one of the best in the league. Alex Petrangelo was at, at going back, retrieving pucks and getting them out of the zone. Um, another guy that our fans are really going to notice this. They're going to look back and say, boy, was Jay Bowmeister ever good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, how many times early on our fans were on Jay and he had some hip issues, then he got it fixed and he was back off and running, then they win the Stanley Cup. But you just notice how many times, how reliable he is, the little things that he does. So that's, you know, I mean, it's I'm not taking anything away from anybody else, but, you know, um, Jay Bowmeister is it's close to a Hall of Fame player as you're going to find. Yeah. And uh, so so that's not easy to replace. So it's, it's going to have to be a real team concept to be able to make up for that. The other part is, and, and again, I'll go back to Robert Thomas, because he was the, the player that uh, as broadcasters, we zoomed in and, and uh, talked to him a little bit this morning, but he, he said the neutral zone coverage was terrible. And, and that's an interesting way of saying it. Wouldn't you think when you're talking about the penalty kill that your defensive zone structure was not very good or your commitment to block a shot wasn't very good? He said, it's our neutral zone. We, we're, we're allowing them to get, get through the neutral zone, get into the offensive zone and get set up. And he says that also goes with our five-on-five play. So he says that's the area that you're going to look at tonight that's going to be greatly improved is the neutral zone play of the St. Louis Blues. Well, we're looking forward to watching it, all of the action on Fox Sports Midwest and right here on 101 ESPN. Darren, we always appreciate the time, man. All the best to you and the family. Excited to be able to see you back out at the rink tonight. Yeah, thank you very much, Alex. And uh, great work in covering the Blues and, and all of sports. And right now we're a big sports fan. So that's great stuff. We'll see you tonight. Thanks, Absolutely. Panger. That is Darren Pang, Blues analyst for Fox Sports Midwest, joining us here on 101 ESPN. Loved his quote. The only guy that was prepared to play that hockey game was Jordan Bennington true. on Friday night. You mentioned it earlier today. He kept them in the game as long as he possibly could Yeah, for about... 30 minutes or so about 25 minutes probably as, he stood on his head as soon as that second po- the first power play goal went in and was two nothing that was the one where basically Krug and Pareko went behind the net yep. to get it Schwartz was the one that went off the ice so it was five on three that point there the blues were off it they looked like the bubble blues in Biddington and there was nothing he could do about it hopefully that's not something that we see a relapse of tonight I I have not. a feeling I have a pretty <laughs> strong feeling that we will not I think they're going to be ready to go they've had a couple of days now they're going to be back home they're out of uh the elevation in colorado i think we're going to see a much better performance tonight it's interesting too that thomas told panger and them about the neutral zone because that neutral zone if you look at it bk they allowed so many players just to skate through two defensemen right into the blue zone and it was totally different on wednesday they were great in the neutral zone on wednesday night it was like it was almost like watching a different team and that's why i feel like you throw out wednesday's game you throw out friday's game and now we start to find out what this blues team's going to be
maybe. I'm going to keep Wednesday's game, throw out Friday's game, but well, otherwise look, I'm with you. Like if, you if you're going to throw Friday, you got to throw Wednesday. That's how this works. I don't agree. It's BK <laughs> and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, we're going to dive into the junk drawer, including the best thing I saw in the sports weekends. All coming up on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. That's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. All right, let's dive into the junk drawer. I got to get things started today. Alex. All right. The best thing I saw this weekend in sports had nothing to do with football. It had everything to do with hockey, and it had nothing to do with the Blues because a, they had a, nothing good this weekend. As a Tom Brady lover, that surprises the hell out of me. So, Jake Voracek, am I pronouncing his last name correctly? Jakob Voracek, but close enough. Jakob? He's Czech. Czech Republic. Okay. Well, he goes by Jake, according to this article. Uh, Jake Voracek of the Flyers was asked a post-game question by a gentleman who is apparently a journalist out in Philadelphia. And I'm just going to get to go ahead and leave it there. That is the setup that you need. Flyers player asked question post game in a setting, unlike or basically like everything that you would see in a normal situation. Mm -hmm. And here's what took place. And I believe this was after a win, correct? They won five to two against the against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Two games in, Jake. How different? Doesn't matter what I say, Mike. You're gonna write every time. No, so it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, yeah, it feels different. I mean, we got four points out of the first two games. I, I wasn't even going to answer your question because you are such a weasel. It's not even funny. Next question. <laughs> oh you, you are such a weasel. It is not even funny. Can we hear the beginning of that one more time? Because the way that he basically introduced, I think this is a crap sandwich, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this, yeah, this because is Because he starts out by insulting the reporter. Mm -hmm. He then answers the question briefly, giving the typical cliche that you would expect. Right. And then finishes it up once again by bashing the reporter. Let's hear this one more time. Two how different doesn't matter what I say Mike you're gonna write every time no so it doesn't matter what you say uh yeah it feels different I mean we <laughs> got four points out of the first two games I, I wasn't even gonna answer your question because you are such a weasel it's not even funny it nice sounds question. like I just like pulled three different answers <laughs> right, yeah and put them in one one consecutive answer that's, that's that is how it sounded in real time that is a perfect turd sandwich insult answer insult do you have like what happened here is so, there a, a history between these two gentlemen like what what is going on so i won't say the, the reporter's name but i there's been instances in the past where this has happened where they've called out this reporter the same can has been happening with the rangers as well because there's a, a reporter that works for new york who he's been called out by dan boyle he's been called out by numerous new york rangers players the only thing that I can find when I went back and looked is this guy is he's a columnist. He's just brutally honest about the Philadelphia Flyers. And when also they lose his name, Mike Sielski, yeah, I believe that's L S K I is the gentleman's yeah. name. Uh, he is brutally honest as a columnist, okay. which everyone is usually when you're a columnist. But I guess in Philly, you can get a little aggressive. And I think he got aggressive with Jakob Voracek and just uh, must have pissed him off too much. Here's the part that was better about this, though, BK. 
was after. So basically at the podium, there were two guys. It was Voracek and then his teammate, Travis Konechny. The teammate's reaction was amazing. So you got to go watch this video because basically after Voracek answered this, the, the, the PR staff member came on and said, okay, next question just to move on. While he's asking the question, Voracek's teammate starts breaking out laughing like he's trying to hold back his laugh as much as possible. His cheeks puff out with air and Voracek turns to him and you could kind of see he mouths to him what it, it like it was just it was incredible what took place but the fact that Voracek went off like that on a zoom makes it that much more interesting I just posted this on my social media account on Twitter at BK Sports Talk it's the best thing that I saw this weekend it was it really is it's one of the best Zoom press conference moments that we will see all year. It's one of the best that we've seen already, and it certainly will remain that. It's incredible. Again, you got to see the the teammates' reaction. Vorchek is amazing. Yeah. The teammates' reaction somehow one ups it because he grabs that drink of water, and the first thing that he does, is like, oh, God. like wait, are you doing this? And he feels the crap sandwich coming on because in yep. the middle, you know, he just answers the question, right? And then he finishes it out by saying, "You're a weasel. <laughs> Everything you write is bleep." And the guy next to him just he's trying so hard to hold it together, he just can't do I'll it. I'll tell you the part that gets me too. It's uh, it's that. It's that movement that you know Ish is about to go down, right? Yeah. Like like when my wife's angry, the hip pops. You know, like you're about to be in trouble. Voracek wipes his eye before he answers the question. Like he is so frustrated. Oh, you just knew there was a bomb that was about to be dropped. 65780 is the air comfort service sex slide from the 314. Damn, Alex was going to leave his name blank. And then BK just says, oh, his name is so-and-so. Yeah, I mean, I listen. guess I don't really care because he's a Philadelphia caller but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the gentleman clearly uh, said some things that player was not happy about, and if the dude is going to put his name on it, I feel like it's okay I, for us to say who it is. And I just heard the name, like the first name, because you know how they do these Zooms. Mike. It's like, Mike, you're up next. So I went through like the black book on NHL, and I'm like, okay, Mike, 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 and there's only one Mike, and I'm like, oh, this has to be it. <laughs> and then I started looking through his columns and pieces, and it's like, oh, okay, so this isn't the first time an athlete has called out Mike. He literally tweeted, this is from 2016, so it's, I think this has been a, an ongoing feud for a while. But Mike, this gentleman, Mike, he tweeted in 2016, the Flyers are collapsing and it is all Jake Voracek's fault. Mike, call him. I, I wasn't even going to answer your question because you are such a weasel. It's not even funny. Next question. <laughs> you can find that full video on Twitter at my Twitter account at BK Sports Talk. It is the best thing that I saw from the sports weekend that included the NFL playoffs. Coming up next, speaking of the, those NFL playoffs, let's go ahead and dive into some NFL quick hitters, including if if Aaron Rodgers is able to win a Super Bowl this year, where would he put himself on the all time list of greats? Especially I want to compare him in particular to Peyton Manning. Would Aaron Rodgers winning a Super Bowl be able to overtake Peyton Manning as an all-time great? We'll talk about that and some other NFL quick hitters coming up next on 101 ESPN. Two games in, Jake. How different. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario.
It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Let's dive into some NFL quick hitters coming off of what was an interesting week of football. Even though the games weren't all that interesting themselves, the storylines that came out of them certainly were. Let's start with the Packers because I thought if you look at any single unit that was the most impressive over the weekend, for me, the Packers offense was the single most impressive unit that I saw over the weekend. So let's talk a little bit about Aaron Rodgers. There's a lot on the line for him potentially coming up over the next couple of weeks. If Aaron Rodgers were to win a Super Bowl, it would be his second. It would be a tie with Peyton Manning in terms of Super Bowl championships. He is also expected to be named NFL MVP this year. It would be his third MVP award. Peyton Manning has five in his career. I am curious, Alex, if Aaron Rodgers goes on to win the Super Bowl this year and he's the driving force behind it, which is what he would be if they do. Do you think that he would overtake Peyton Manning in the all-time great discussion? Which is basically being the second best quarterback of the last 20 years. Because I think that's where Peyton Manning rightfully is right now. I think so. And I think that second Super Bowl would solidify it. And here's why. Peyton Manning's second Super Bowl with the Broncos was what we talked about. You had to have a quarterback, but that defense led them to that Super Bowl. If the Packers win the Super Bowl... It's all on Aaron Rodgers. It is all on number 12. And and look, I think we've been played in the media a little bit about this Packers team because all we talk about is, oh, well, these Packers, the Packers aren't going out and spending money. They're not getting any weapons for Aaron Rodgers. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Maybe they don't need to. I was watching videos of Aaron Rodgers on the field the other day. I mean, this guy has his team down to hand movements of signals and audibles on the field. That's something that other quarterbacks don't have. And he's worked with the same units in Lazard and Valdez Scantling and Devonte Adams in this offensive line and the running game. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is doing all of this with these weapons that on any other team wouldn't be talked about as much. So I think he should be because that second Super Bowl, if he gets it solidifies him, I think is better than Peyton Manning. See, I'm, I'm not there yet. I'm not. Um, I still think that I would go with Manning over Aaron Rodgers. And it's because of the consistency that we saw from Peyton Manning. If you look so far at Rodgers' career, he's been to five conference championship games, just one Super Bowl. Rodgers was a mainstay, or excuse me, uh, Manning was a mainstay in the AFC championship game whenever he was in Indianapolis. It seemed like every year it was, who's going to the Super Bowl? Is it going to be Peyton Manning or is it going to be Aaron Rodgers or Big Ben? It was one of those three every single year in the AFC. And I haven't felt that way about Rodgers. I haven't felt the inevitability of Aaron Rodgers. Is that the competition, though, in the conference? Because at the time, what was the competition in the AFC? I know the Patriots, obviously, but what was the competition other than that? Steelers as well. Steelers were always up there. You had the Chargers there for a while with uh, Phillip Rivers were among the... Because the NFC for a while seemed like it was always so dominant when, when you had the Rams and the Niners and the Seahawks and the Vikings and the Saints. Like, it felt like it was always so dominant. Yeah, I just... I. Maybe I'm wrong on this. I mean, in terms of the number of AFC championship games, now that I kind of look back through it, it, it's basically the same for Manning. He went to three with the Colts and then two with the Denver Broncos, the Packers in Rogers career. This is his sixth. So it's about the same. But for some reason in my mind, I just view Manning as being better 
than Aaron Rodgers. Rodgers is more talented, but I view Manning as being more accomplished. Yeah. He won more MVPs. He was on the All-Pro team more often. So even that Rogers second Super Bowl, done. it doesn't change your mind? It doesn't for me. Yeah. It doesn't for me. I think he would have to get to a third or finish his career with, with something special yeah. over the next few years, which is possible. He could still get there, but for me, it is still Brady 1 and then mm-hmm. Manning 2. And a big part of this is the Tom Brady factor. Yeah. Rodgers didn't have to go through Tom Brady in the NFC. You asked the question of, is it the competition for the AFC? Is that why Manning went to so many? I actually view it the opposite way. I view it as the competition in the NFC is part of what's holding me back from Rodgers. Who was the, the, the team in the NFC over the last 15 years for Rodgers? He didn't really have one. Yeah. I mean, you had the Seahawks there for a while. The Saints have had their time. You've had kind of a rotation of teams. But in the AFC, it was always Brady. You had to get through the Patriots to be able to get to through the Super, get to the Super Bowl. Yeah. And the Packers didn't have that standing in their way in the NFC. So I'm still going to lean Manning for me. But I do understand. I think that there's for a lot of people. I think a lot of people are going to be on your side. That, yeah. Rodgers is the guy right. as the number two quarterback for this generation if he wins the Super Bowl this year. Next thing, as we go through some NFL quick hitters for Ario, should I be worried about the Bills? As a Chiefs fan, should I be worried about this Bills team? Uh, I personally am speaking for Bills Mafia and for Donnie Fandango in the building. You're damn right you should be afraid of them. Kansas City win a they, they met it was a challenge against Cleveland like they almost lost that come on against Cleveland I know I know Pat Mahomes choked out concussion whatever he went through he was yeah. out of there kind Still, of an important fact it was a lot closer than anybody expected it to be with those two matchups defensively I think Buffalo might be a little bit better than Cleveland's defense secondary wise front definitely I, I think they're going to be better that's going to be the biggest thing for Kansas City to overcome how do you handle the defense? I know Josh Allen. Josh Allen can be a, a great thing. It could be a problem for him. It's really a wild card round. They have no running game. I understand all of that. But the defense for Buffalo. Is this a crap sandwich? I, I, I think this is a crap sandwich. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Donnie, I need to bring him back in here. But I, I think that defense for Buffalo should concern Kansas City fans a little bit to shut them down at least at some point. And then with that offense to find an answer for Diggs and Allen. I'm not worried about it. Okay. Not worried about him. Okay. I, I am scared of Stefan Diggs. That that dude terrifies me. I'm I'm worried about him. You're not afraid of Cole Beasley? No. Not afraid of John. Not afraid Brown. of Devin Singletary? Not afraid of Devin Singletary, the guy that rushed the ball seven times for twenty five yards against the Ravens. You're uh-huh. not you're not afraid of the quarterback that has the same build of Ben Roethlisberger and looks like Dan Marino on the field? <laughs> yeah, that has the arm of yeah. Dan Marino and the build of a young Ben Roethlisberger. Maybe the mind of Tom Brady. We don't know. I think we saw last week Josh Allen is a really good quarterback, and I've been saying this for a while. Josh Allen is a really good quarterback that has some limitations. And if you pressure him, you have a chance to make him do some things that he is uncomfortable with. And I think the Chiefs are going to be able to do that. I I don't think they will dominate this game. I don't. I think they're going to win it, though, as long as Patrick Mahomes is healthy and good to go. And that remains an open question. It seems like that's going to be the case. But, I mean, the Chiefs were up whenever they lost their starting quarterback 22 to 10 and that included the field goal that they scored on that drive when Mahomes went out and Chad Haney came in and looked terrible on that first drive they scored a touchdown on that drive they end up being up 26 to 10 and they look like they're potentially going to pull away from that game they didn't because Chad Haney on that next drive stunk and threw one of the worst interceptions I've ever seen who was he throwing that to I don't know 
I'm not worried about Buffalo, though. Okay. Maybe I should be, but I'm not worried about them just yet. All right. Sound pretty cocky over there, BK. I will say this. I gained a lot more respect for Baker Mayfield in that loss than I expected to. Mm-hmm. I thought Baker Mayfield looked really good in that game. Yeah. I think that the Browns are not a one-year wonder. No. I think the Browns are going to be back here. I think they are going to be a threat in the AFC for years to come. And in fact, going into next season, I wouldn't be surprised if they are viewed as the favorite in the AFC North. Do, would the Browns have had a better chance of beating Kansas City with OBJ or a worse chance? Good question. I didn't think their receivers were the problem in that game. Well, they kind of were. The fumble. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's not <laughs> that's not on him. I, I'm just curious because that's the that's the... That's the um, black sheep of the group, right? Yeah. Because he's the he's the odd one out going into the offseason. You played as well as you did without OBJ all season. Do you need him back in the problems that he brings? It's a totally fair question. It's an open question that I don't have a good answer for. I think it all depends on. I think you need to have a conversation with Baker Mayfield. OK, I'll call him up and say, well, let me clarify. <laughs> I think the Browns front office needs to have a conversation with Baker Mayfield because he was better yeah. down the stretch without Odell, Odell Beckham than he was early in the air when Odell was you got depth at receiver now with Peoples Jones and Higgins along with Landry they looked good yeah they did and that offense really found itself in the second half of the season I know on the broadcast Tony Romo was talking about it a lot how they went to a more shotgun oriented approach and Baker was more comfortable the offensive line started finding its stride I think that's a really good team that has a ton of roster talent that's going to be around for years to come and I think it's an open question as to whether or not Odell should be a part of that yeah I would totally understand it, honestly, if they decided to trade him this offseason. I would totally get it. Because if Baker feels like he's better with an assortment of options and guys that are okay with him throwing to somebody else, depending on who's open on any given play, I think he should go about it that way. Mm -hmm. I got no issue with that whatsoever. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 314. BK, you said that the receivers weren't a problem for the Browns. I guess that Higgins fumble would not have beaten the Chiefs if that was called a touchdown. I get it. I don't, I'm not blaming Higgins, though, for that fumble. Yeah, Higgins that didn't the lose the game stupid. for him. I think the rule is stupid, and I think that they shouldn't have lost the ball. I know, but I I, I, I don't think the the receivers were the problem. I for think them Higgins' that fumble is a lot less of a problem than OBJ for an entire season. I think there's a good point to be made there. He's Alex Ferrario. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's 115. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Coming up next, Alex Ferrario had a really interesting point about the Blues being able to pull off a sweep in Friday's game. Obviously, they weren't able to do so. There's a lot of teams around the league that haven't been able to do it. Is that going to be a storyline to watch throughout the year? We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. So the Blues have to work on their special teams play in a really big way. No. A really big way. The penalty kill is just in shambles right now. They finished 18th in the NHL last season after two games. They've already given up six goals on 11 possible power play opportunities against the Avalanche. They surrendered five goals on seven chances on Friday night. It's inexcusable. It can't happen. The rate of giving up power play goals is terrible, but the rate of taking penalties for Ario somehow is even worse. Yeah, they've been whistled for 12 minors so far this season in two games by 11 different players that if you're looking for one of the the keys to the game tonight, mm-hmm. stay out of the damn penalty box, right? 
you just you have to stay out of the box because the PK is getting just picked on right now, and there's a lot of reasons as to why. But losing Alex Petrangelo, we talked a lot about that in the offseason. We didn't really talk about what that means for your penalty kill. Well, we're seeing some of the results of that right now. Not having Bo Meester also is a big part of that. They're struggling mm-hmm. in that area. The power play, I think they'll get that figured out. The PK is something that I'm a little bit more concerned about. But that was, on Friday night, that was as big of a story as anything was yeah. what happened on the PK. Without question, that PK, and I mean, Panger told us that they had the conversation with Robert Thomas earlier today in the neutral zone. I mean, the inability to defend the neutral zone was I mean, was blatant. I mean, you had three of those power play goals that were scored just coming straight through the neutral zone and speeding down the ice and going straight through two defensemen. So that needs to be figured out. You know, the penalties need to be figured out too. One, the blues are like you said, in the open, they were slow and that's what gets you with the hooking calls. It's what gets you with the holding calls, but then there's the ticky tacky calls too, that don't go their way. And it's just frustrating. Like the Kyle Clifford roughing call at the end of the second period, which led to the fifth goal of the hockey game. That's the kind of stuff that it's like, if we're going to call one way, let's call it one way. If we're going to call it the other, but Craig, Ruby sees that as as excuses and that just means the Blues need to be much more disciplined like they were in that first game. They took four penalties in the first game, but the penalty kill was good on the first game. Yep. They killed three of those four. So it really just comes down to being responsible and playing stronger in your own zone. And as Thomas told Darren Pang, you need to protect the neutral zone better. And the other guy that we can't forget about on this is Alex Steen as well. He was also a significant yeah. piece and of Bo that Meester. penalty kill. So between Bo Steen and uh, Petrangelo, that's three of your top penalty that's killers basically that like, are no longer around. That's like 90 seconds of a two-minute penalty kill right there with those three. It's huge, mm-hmm. and they don't have any of them around anymore, so there's going to be a lot of adjustments that have to take place. So it's not something we really talked about because we like the defensive core that they have, yeah. and they have really good defenders in those forward groups. They just, they're going to have to figure this thing out. They're going to have to coalesce over the next couple of weeks. And it's it's going to be an adjustment period that we, maybe not we, but I certainly didn't really think a whole lot about coming into the season. And you're going up against a really good team. Yeah. Like the Avalanche are one of the most potent offenses in all of hockey. So you should have expected that to be difficult. Speaking of one of the best teams in hockey going up against, that was the task at hand for the Blues on Friday night. They were going for the sweep. Mm-hmm. They were hoping to pull off that two-game sweep against the Avalanche. And this is something we talked about with Greg Wyshynski last week. He mentioned, hey, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is finding out if that's going to be a story that prevails throughout the course of the season. Yeah, Is it going to be something where you're able to get that two-game sweep or... Are, is the opposition going to be so motivated in that second game to prevent the four-point four swing, basically, that they're going to come out swinging in that second game, and it's going to be really difficult to get that full sweep? I think we saw on Friday night, that's exactly what's going to take place this year. Yeah, I think the sweeps are going to be the biggest challenge this season for teams, and I don't think you're going to see a lot of them. I mean, look, BK, after the first two, three games of the season, basically that first set of series for teams, six of the 31 teams pulled off sweeps. So, I mean, you had 25 teams, and I guess you take the other six out that were sure. swept, but, I mean, you have basically over 50% of the NHL that split the series. And I think you're going to see a lot of that because the factors that come into it, one, the other team's going to be more prepared. How prepared are you? We just saw that with the Blues. And look, the Vegas Golden Knights were losing to the Anaheim Ducks in in their second game of the series all the way up until the final 90 seconds of that hockey game when the defense broke down. 
But, I mean, you're going to have a lot of overtime games that are going to dictate that. If the other team's more prepared than you are, it's going to bite you in the rear end. On top of that, it's the extra motivator because these are eight-point swings, if you th- or four-point swings if you think about it. You get the two points and then the four-point swing in one game yep. and then another four points in that second one. So, I mean, you could be looking at an eight-point differential after a series of where you stand compared to the team that just beat you. So, these these second games in the series are going to be more difficult than any other uh, than anything that they've dealt with in the past in the regular season. Did we learn anything in the first week of watching hockey, Alex, about the West Division? Yeah, because we we talked about this a lot leading into the season. I was probably more down on the division than you were. I think that they have three elite teams: Vegas, Colorado, St. Louis. I think those are three elite teams, and then I think from there, there's a pretty clear drop off uh, in this division. And there's some good teams, but not, not necessarily guys that are world beaters. I think the central frankly is a little tougher. I think there's a little bit more depth in that division. At least that was my opinion on it coming into the season. I know you thought it was a lot deeper than people were giving it credit for Mm -hmm. after watching for a week or so watching the first couple of games. Do you still feel that way? I do. I feel like the West is a lot more difficult than what people are making it out to be. Um, look, Minnesota swept their series and Minnesota played. I know they played the LA Kings, which they're not a great team. And they won both games four to three. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have to have overtime, but I mean, that offense for Minnesota was very strong for you. I said it in the preseason before the season began, BK, that's a, that's a group of players right now that are playing for their careers because Bill Guerin will get rid of whoever he needs to. Arizona went to overtime and lost a game. And then they won the other one when I believe they played against the San Jose Sharks, who the blues are going to see mm-hmm. next. Arizona's got offense defensively. They might be a little bit too iffy, but offensively they can score goals. And look, the San Jose Sharks are not a team that you can just pass by. I mean, they still have two of the best defensemen in the National Hockey League offensively in Burns and Carlson. And then on top of that, two very solid lines. So I just mentioned those three teams on top of the three that we've already established as elite and Anaheim played both games against Vegas as close as can be. So I think LA's the team that is the easy team, if that makes any sense. They're not going to be easy, but they're the easiest of that division. But the other ones, I see them making this a lot more competitive. They might not be the top three, but they'll steal points away from teams like the Blues, the Minnesota Wild, the Arizona Coyotes, Avalanche, Vegas. That could dictate a postseason position. Blues versus Sharks tonight. Pre-game coverage beginning at 6 o'clock right here on 101 ESPN. We will have the puck drop at 7 o'clock. The lines yesterday at pre-game skate were shaken up quite a bit. Sanford, Ryan O'Reilly, and Perron now on that top line. Schwartzchen and Kairou on the second line. You had Hoffman and Thomas still together, but Bozak as the right winger on that third line. And then the fourth line was as expected. Clifford, Barbie, and Sonny on that fourth line. That's the thing that I'm probably most looking forward to seeing tonight. Yeah. What does this do? What do the the shuffling of the lines, what does that do for the Blues? I want to see Thomas as a top six forward. I want to see him getting top six forward minutes over the course of the season. I don't think this is going to be the long-term answer. I don't think that they will have this grouping for the long haul, but we know that Baruby likes to switch things up when things aren't working. It typically goes well when he does this. I want to see if they're able to respond tonight, and specifically with that Hoffman and Thomas line, I want to see how much different they look with Bozak, who is a really good defender, what he looks like on that line. As long as the game stays five on five, I don't think you're going to see third line minutes for Robert Thomas. I think you're going to still see 
Craig Berube even things out because he gets his final line change. He gets the matchups tonight. I think you're going to see the Robert Thomas, Bozak, and Hoffman line matched up against the inefficiencies of San Jose's third line that the Blues can get out there and exploit with offense. But what he's doing with those top two is you're going back to what what's worked. You're going back to Sanford, which has made him his best playing with O'Reilly and Perron. And frankly, you're putting Schwartz and Shen back together. They're yeah. at their best together. So at least what you're doing is you're creating depth of offense right now. Yeah, I think they're going back to their identity. They're going back to four lines that they can roll out at any point in time. And that's what Berube likes. Frankly, I love Shen at center. I, I really think Shen makes a difference at center rather than what he does at wing. He's just he plays physical down the middle and he opens up space. So I think it's going to benefit the Blues. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. So hold on. The Blues aren't playing Kairou tonight. No, he's with Schwartz and Shin. He's he's on that second yeah. line, if you will, uh, with Schwartz and Shin. And those are two really good defenders as well. So it makes sense. They Basically, what they're doing here, at least if I were to play armchair psychologist, they're, they're putting their guys that are liabilities defensively with other players that are really good defensively. Yep. You've got Hoffman, who, let's be honest, with what we saw on Friday night, didn't look good defensively. Okay, now we're going to put him with Bozak, who is a really good defender on the other side. Kairou is going to be with Schwartz and Shin, both of whom are really good defensively. Very good uh, on that side of things. And then Sanford up on the top line now where he was for much of last season and was comfortable with O'Reilly and Perron. So yeah. they know that they have the comfortability with that top line. And then the other two, they're just trying to make sure that they have good defensive players with the guys that are liabilities. Yeah, your third line, the last two games have been defensive liabilities, having Kairou and Sanford with Bozak, even though Bozak's great. You need to spread the wealth a little bit with defense. That is Alex Ferrario. You'll hear him on pregame coverage coming up at 6 o'clock. I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Coming up next, I swear I'm not a hater. I'm not a hater, but I've got some serious questions about the Ravens and whether or not they're going to be able to win a, a Super Bowl with Lamar Jackson as their quarterback. We'll talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. And that'll do it. The Buffalo Bills, for the first time since 1994, are going to the AFC Championship game. This magic ride for Josh Allen and the rest of the Bills will continue for at least one more week. With Alex Ferrario, I'm Brandon Kylie. It is BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. That was via the Bills radio network. The Bills advancing, the Ravens not doing so much. We'll talk more about the Bills as we go along here on BK and Ferrario. But I did want to talk a little bit about Lamar Jackson. And 65780 is the Air Comfort Service tax line from the 314. BK Cater is back. Yeah. I don't know. I'll take B. Cater over Buzz Killington any day of the week. Okay, so we've got B. Cater and Buzz Killington. Yeah. Regardless of what you think this is, it's certainly one of the two. <laughs> I like Lamar Jackson. I think he's a solid quarterback. But? I think right now he's a top 10 quarterback in the league. But? I don't think you can win a Super Bowl with him. I don't think right now, with the way that the league is going, with it being such a passing league, and clearly Lamar, while being a an excellent player has some deficiencies as a passer. I think it's fair to say at this point in his career, I don't know that when he gets down, you're able to come back And in the playoffs. You have to have that ability. We saw it last year with the chiefs. They got down by at least 10 points in every game. And Mahomes was able to lead them back. We've seen Josh Allen have the ability to bring teams back. We know Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers are both guys that can do that. I don't know if Lamar can, mm -hmm. and you can win that way. You can win a game, maybe even two games. Maybe three. 
I don't think you can win like four straight games playing the way that Lamar does. And here's the other problem that I have. I think there's one more year left with Lamar having any chance of being able to do it. And the reason why I say that is because he's on the final year of his rookie deal next season. It'll cost them about $5 million. Going into the following year, he'll be on his fifth year option if they pick it up, and they will, for about $20 million. If they were to bring him back after that, it's going to be 30 plus million, given the fact that he has won an MVP and is one of the 10 best quarterbacks in the league. So suddenly, instead of having this all world supporting cast around him, and I know that people will point to his receivers and the fact that he doesn't have a whole lot of guys to throw to look at that defense. They've spent their money on that side of the ball. You're not going to have that anymore to be able to rely on. I think it is next year or bust for the Lamar Jackson led Ravens. They need to get him some more weapons to be able to find out for sure if he can or not. But right now it's trending in the direction for me that I'm not sure you can win a Super Bowl with him. You know, I would have liked to seen this team with a healthy Ronnie Stanley. That was a big hit by the Ravens when they lost their, their left tackle, their pro bowl left tackle. But I'm with you. I don't know if if they're ever going to win the Super Bowl with Lamar Jackson unless he's on a super team or if they find some diamonds in the roughs when it comes to draft picks. But it also comes down to Lamar. I mean, right now, he can't stay healthy. Now, he was through the MVP season, but this season... I mean, he got concussed. I know, but... I, that's, I'm not going to I'm not gonna kill him for that. But that's the problem when it comes to a running quarterback, right? I mean, like, look, we just saw what happened with Pat Mahomes, and I know that might not have been a concussion. They're saying that that was a nerve issue. But still, when you're a running quarterback, when you're not a Brady, a Rodgers, a Manning, a Breeze... That's what's going to happen to you. And if you can't stay healthy for the beginning towards your career, as it goes on, it's not going to be any easier. I mean, look at look at what Russell Wilson's going through right now. Like he won his Super Bowl and was at the Super Bowl because they did build it around the championship and he got older, he got paid and they kind of lost the money elsewhere. Well, now they're kind of in this purgatory, and I'm worried that's what's going to happen with the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. Yeah, Russ is better than than Lamar. Oh yeah, though. By, you know, like, without question, Russ can win with his arm, and that's my concern about the Ravens is. I think they are built to win a specific style. They, they are built to win. They're like the, the baseball team that wins with pitching and defense, right? Or the, the hockey team that is exclusively built on a really strong defense. Mm-hmm. They don't have anybody in their, in their forward lines that are really significant threats to score. L- Lamar can score, but he really he needs to play from ahead. When he is leading, you can run, right? It is... It is a running style that they use that can build the leads and then it sustains the leads and it runs out the clock and the opponent just doesn't have any way to come back when they get behind the way that they did against the Bills. And I know that he got hurt and I know that changed some the dynamic of some things. But once they got behind in that third quarter, it felt like it was over. I didn't have any belief that Lamar Jackson was going to be able to lead the the Ravens back into that game. And when you move forward and as you said, You've got some questions about him long term with his health. I do think that's fair. Um, And you've got some questions about how you're going to be able to build the team around Lamar Jackson. I think it's fair to ask these questions. 65780 is the air comfort service tax line from the 314 guys. But Lamar Jackson is still a 24 year old quarterback that can get his uh, team to the playoffs every year. Isn't that worth something? Absolutely. We also had somebody asking, do you are you suggesting that the Ravens cut or trade him? No, No. that's not what we're talking about. What I am saying, though, is that they might be, as Ferrario said, kind of stuck in that purgatory Mm -hmm. of being a good team. But you're going to require some real breaks the way that the Ravens got with 
um, Joe Flacco back in the day. It's going to take some breaks for you to have any shot of winning a Super Bowl with this guy as your quarterback. Does Lamar Jackson suffer from the he needs two receivers to win? And what I mean by that is uh, he's got Marquise Brown, who Marquise Brown is a very good receiver. We've seen Mm -hmm. that this season. But like we've seen with other teams, like you have to have that dual threat. Some teams don't. Josh Allen needs Stephon Diggs. Now you got Cole Beasley, a couple of others, but Stephon Diggs is the main one. It, It seems like Lamar Jackson, yes, he is deficient in areas when it comes to throwing the ball. But he also seems to only have one guy to go to when it's not Mark Andrews, it's Brown, and that's about it. Yeah, I think there's something to that. They they definitely they, the number one key to their offseason has to be improving the 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 receivers that they yeah. have. They, they have get to get weapons. somebody in there, whether it be in free agency, maybe they go out and get Allen Robinson or something like that. They have to improve the weapons around him to find out if what you're saying is true. Yeah. Is he capable and he just doesn't have the guys around him or are these guys around him not taking that next step? In part because Lamar is a little bit limited as a passer. Boykin and Sneed right now as the second receiver. Boykin was a second round pick. I mean, it's it's not like they use no draft assets yeah. in that spot, but they tried to build around him by building him a really good offensive line, which they have, mm-hmm. a really good running game around him, which they have, and a tremendous defense to play to his strengths. All of that fair and I think was the right move. Now you got to take the next step of what the Bills did last offseason by bringing in Stephon Diggs. Whoever that guy is, I'm not sure, but they need to do that. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line from the 636. So basically, you guys are saying that the Ravens are the Cardinals. Going to be around, can maybe be exciting for a round or two in the playoffs, but really no chance to win a Super Bowl. It's a great comparison, yeah. Yes, that's exactly what they are. That's exactly who I think they are right now, and we'll talk about this more, I think, tomorrow. But if I'm the Ravens... And the Texans call and they say, hey, we will trade you to Sean Watson for Lamar Jackson and a first round pick. I am putting the phone on hold to talk to my lieutenants to say, can you guys believe they're offering this to us? These guys must (laughs) be drunk. They are offering us Deshaun Watson, who is better than Lamar and can win a Super Bowl, in my opinion. For Lamar Jackson and a first round pick. These you guys, guys are cool drunk. with that? We're, we're all good, right? Okay, cool. I'm going to go ahead and accept now. And then they should accept that trade on the spot and move forward with the Deshaun Watson as their starting quarterback. That, that's the perfect trade for them to get out them, of this purgatory. Do you put them on hold to make them think that it was a good deal? Like at Absolutely. the time? Like so that's that what Doug, wondering. I'm imagining that's what Doug Armstrong did with Philly and Yuri Laterra. Like, well, I'm going to put them on hold for about five <laughs> minutes and make them think that this was a great trade that I really had to think about. Yeah, I, I think Lamar is a quality player. I just think that he is limited. And in today's game, I'm not sure you're able to win a Super Bowl that way. So I think there's there's some big time questions that need to be answered in Baltimore this offseason. We're going to cross things over with the fast lane coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Crossing things over with the fast lane, Anthony Stalter in studio with us. Stoltz, what's going on, man? Well, I was worried about you and me after Mahomes went down yesterday. I was worried about me and Barnes as well. (laughs) I was in a very bad place for about 30 minutes yesterday, of real time yesterday. I saw Mahomes go down and I was like, oh, so that's that's the way the season ends. Good season, boys. Try to pick it back up next year. So you thought they were going to lose when he went down? Absolutely. Hundred oh, wow. percent. Did did you Barnes? I, I wasn't in that uh, in that mode. I, I felt really? pretty good because they still had a lead. 
Yeah, oh, I didn't feel and, great about the defense standing strong, but absolutely, and I didn't feel good about Chad Henney throwing the pick that he ended up throwing. I still thought they could at least sneak by at that point. I had hope because of that cushion. I think if that game was week, another five yeah. minutes, they would have lost. Yeah, I I was really because I mean the, their entire team is geared around the quarterback, right? They built their team to be the best possible situation for Patrick Mahomes. So they have great weapons, but a not great offensive line because Mahomes is mobile enough to be able to neuter that. And then their defense is built around p- playing with the lead. So you hoped that that would be able to hold up, but they were down two of their starting corners at that point in right. time. So it just, it felt like everything was, if they had a really good running game, I would have felt really good about it, but they don't. Yeah. The running game stinks. And they had Daryl Williams, their third string running back who was starting for them. So I, I did not feel good about that at all. I, I still stretch. felt I was with me. I, I still felt pretty good. Although when the Browns got the ball back with about seven and a half minutes left, that was when I thought, all right, this is this is where the Browns absolutely have to win this game. And I thought the biggest difference between Kevin Stefanski, who has been exceptional for the Browns this, this year, he has done something that nobody else before him has been able to accomplish, which is actually to take the, the talent that is on the roster for Cleveland and turn it into what we're seeing or what we did just see this, this past season. But I thought the biggest difference was Andy Reid had the play. Andy Reid had the one go-to play on top of the biggest huevos rancheros in America (laughs) to make that decision, but he had the play. You hear all the time, it's about players, not plays, right? Yeah, to a certain degree, I agree over a 16 Well, even on that play, it was about the player, because how many players in the NFL can get that kind of separation on that play, right? Chad Henney. I know. That was the play call, right? Whether it was Mahomes or Chad Henney. Good point. They had the play, and I guess they did that in week four as well. So they kind of uh, like that play. Like week 12 against the Dolphins. That there was the way go. they sealed that game. So you did it with Mahomes. You did it with Henny. But Andy Reid had his go-to. And when you go back and watch the seven at, at about seven and a half minutes when the Browns got the football, and they kind of putzed around for a little bit, and they, for, and they were almost forced to punt, I thought that was the, that was the moment that they didn't, not that they lost it there, but they didn't win it. They didn't go out and grab it. And you got to go back one play before that, right? Chad Henney's scramble to pick up 13 yards on third and 14 is going to go down. And Barnes, you can back me up on this, especially in our lifetimes. It's one of the single most important plays in the history of the Kansas City Chiefs franchise. Absolutely. like That, that is up there with last year's uh, Patrick Mahomes run in the AFC Championship going into halftime against the Titans. It is that significant because if he doesn't pick up 13 yards there, if it's closer to 10 or 11, yeah, you're, punting. you're punting the ball. And I don't think the Chiefs are stopping them. And I think they lose the game and you're not having any opportunity to win a back-to-back title for the first time in the NFL in 15 years. Like that, that is what was on the line with that play and Chad Henney, of all people, was able to execute on it. it it's, it's truly going to be one of those. It's kind of like the Julio Jones play in the Super Bowl, that yeah. the catch. Nobody remembers been. that, right? right. It should have been, been one of the best catches that we've seen in Super yeah. Bowl history, but it won't be remembered that way because they lost. Right. That's, that's how that's going to be for Henney. Like, it will be remembered fondly but for, by Chiefs fans, but for most of the rest of NFL fan bases, they'll remember whatever comes next for sure. the Chiefs, depending on what happens against the Bills. The Browns fans will remember it too. I mean, that you you can't you cannot allow that to happen. You have to force Chad Henney to get the ball out of his hands quickly, or to try to make some play that he can't he can't make. To not be able 
to hold the line of scrimmage the way they did. They were, the, the pass rush was an issue for Cleveland. I mean, you saw a lot of their ends constantly getting upfield. You know, with, whether it's Mahomes or Brady, you get a great quarterback, just rush up the field if you're a defensive end. You're, you're, you're giving them the opportunity to simply step up in the pocket and beat you. For that for that play, for Chad Henney at 35 years old, to, to get outside like that is absolutely inexcusable. Was, you, can, you can't have that happen. You're right. Um, I will say this, though. I think the Browns showed me something yesterday that was pretty impressive. Baker Mayfield in particular. I thought he was pretty good yesterday. I know the numbers don't necessarily indicate that, but I thought he was he was a guy that concerned me as a Chiefs fan as he was on the opposing side of things. I think they're they're heading in the right direction. Like if I were yeah. to make a way too early prediction for next season, I think the Browns are going to be the best team in their division next year. And I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with for years to come in the AFC because that's it's a really talented team that now is, as you said, a really good coach in charge. I like the Ravens still in that division. Depend, really? Depend on what they do. Yeah. And then the, and then Browns over the Steelers. Their defense is is a Super Bowl caliber defense. Yeah. But what what the Ravens need to do now and we saw it again on Saturday night if if John Harbaugh doesn't if if Greg Roman their offensive coordinator isn't the one to develop the passing game John Harbaugh has to go find somebody that will I sat there as as Buffalo was was playing uh four quarters so cover cover four constantly with the, the safeties mm-hmm. deep and taking away the outsides and watching Lamar Jackson constantly throw to the outsides was absolutely unnerving to me. Now I had the Ravens. I bet on the Ravens. I like the Ravens. That was that was the team I hyped up all last week. On top of the Saints, so I, I had a bad weekend. Uh, but sorry, buddy. When Jamie, you know Jamie and and the BT and Barnes were were texting and stuff like that, I go, this is inexcusable that Greg Roman's not dialing up passes to attack the the, the middle of the field, the seams, the way that they were covering. You you had the seams and the and the flats open constantly, and they just never adjusted. I think part of that is Lamar. I, it I might think be. he's I think he's part of the issue there, and I I like Lamar. I think he's a top ten ish quarterback in the league because of what he's able to do with his legs. I I don't think he's refined as a passer, and that's both his actual throwing mechanics, his ability to throw the ball, and also his uh, his ability to break down opposing defenses. Like I I do think that is part of what's going into that, and I have serious questions at this point as to whether or not you can win a Super Bowl with that guy as your quarterback. I I, I we've now seen it three straight years. You right. get into the postseason year one, it is unfair to judge him based on what happened against the Chargers because he was brand new quarterback. A lot of young quarterbacks have issues in the playoffs. Year two, it happened again against the Titans. And in year three, it happened again against the Bills. And eventually, there's some evidence that is starting to show itself that, hey, when an opposing team is able to specifically game plan against you, which is what happens in the playoffs, they've found ways to take away his strengths and to expose some of his weaknesses. And we've seen it now three straight years. He's got one more year of his rookie deal. It's got to happen next year because after that, it becomes $20 million for him. And then after that, it's 30 plus million. If you pay him, it's going to be really hard to be able to support him with, like you said, a championship defense and all of the weapons that he clearly needs. You OK, so you just you just praise Baker Mayfield. You put you put Lamar Jackson in ba- Baker Mayfield's offense. So Kevin Stefanski's offense. Do you still feel the way you do right now about Lamar? Are you as as you are you as confident in saying that Lamar is is an issue? Potentially. I mean, I don't know because of the situation being so different, but I think it's possible. Yeah, I I think he is a liability as a passer. I I think that when you get into the postseason and he gets behind, I think you're in a lot of trouble. 
And I, I think in the playoffs, if you don't have the ability to come from behind, I, I don't know that you can win three or four straight games, especially going up against better defenses, which is what you see in the postseason typically, right. and coaches that are willing to adjust what they do based on what your tendencies are. We've seen it now, and I I, I think he's he's grumbled at times in the postseason. All right, maybe maybe we'll get into this uh, a little bit more at some point because I feel like we're we're not. I mean, I, look, Lamar Lamar is there. There's there's issues there. Sure. If Greg, I, I do pin a lot of it on not a lot of it. I pin I pin some of it on. Greg Roman's inability to develop more of a passing game as well. Stoltz, what else is coming up today on the fast lane, my man? We're going to talk about the. So Jamie's going to break down the issues that we saw with the Blues on Friday night. I, 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 I owe Jamie some money and some kudos for his Tampa Bay Buccaneers winning. And then we got some reaction to to John Mozeliak at uh, winter warm up. Looking forward to all of that. That's coming up from two to six. We'll be back tomorrow at eleven, right here on one hundred one ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast powered by I promise.